The following podcast is brought to you by cdkoffers.com. Use offer code DIESHRING for 3% off everything on the website and Broken Silicon for 25% off all Windows codes. All right, on with the show. Welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast, uh, the number 14th best tech podcast in Trinidad and Tobago as of last week. <laughs> so I think last time either Mozambique or Ukraine overtook them. I don't remember, but <laughs> Tobago's back on top. It's something I've been doing the start of every podcast is just seeing which country can get us closest to number one. I think we were number one in like I don't even remember Lithuania one week or something, <laughs> but um, anyways, yeah, I mean, I'm your host, Tom, and I will let my guest introduce himself. Hey, I'm Wendell. I'm from Level 1 Techs. Uh, I don't know. Friendly Neighborhood Computer Janitor. I don't know what what you want. We, I talk about stuff. I'm, I'm a rambler. like to ramble. like technology. That's about all you need to know. Well, and a lot of other stuff. I checked out your channel again recently, and uh, you have quite the uh, cornucopia of subjects for some of your videos. <laughs> well, we moved all the Linux people off to their own channel, so that's all That's all good. And then everything else, technology, because the Linux people can be uh, uh, handsy. I was, I was about to say, if you, you have to be careful, because if you let... Linux I love them, and, and you know it's like they're they're just I'm just as pedantic with them as they are with me. It's fine. It's just that you got to be a yeah, certain they bite sometimes. Yeah, if you're true. not careful, <laughs> they do. It's a it's a it's a love. It's like you know you get a cat and a cat like sinks in and it's like oh that's going to be infected. And cat mostly didn't mean it. You know it's it's actually it's interesting you say a cat because yeah I would say having a community. A Linux person typically is like when you're petting this cat and you think things are going well. And then right when that cat wants you to stop petting it, like, you know, for instance, you say Windows is better for gaming. Then the cat just decides to tell you it wants to be done getting pet by scratching the shit out of your arm. And uh, that's sometimes how it feels Linux uh, people are like. (laughs) Now that I've alienated all of them at the start of the podcast. (laughs) But then again, I probably haven't because... I mean, with all the compiling they put up with using Linux, they're probably gluttons for pain. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's like, I'm going to invest my entire lifetime up here, but I'm going to have five minutes of glorious computation. And it was amazing. But yeah, it's... (laughs) Um, Let's see. Let me just throw in a reader mail from the start. So Brian Steiner writes in and he says, Wendell, will you, Ryan and Krista, be doing your weekly news podcast in the same room this year ever? Or will Krista just be a monitor from now on? I don't know. Things are weird. Uh, who knows? I mean, it's uh, we're Ron and I are farther apart than it looks like on camera. That that desk is like seven mm, feet yeah. wide. But uh, uh, you know, I don't know. Who knows? I mean, it's it's basically like all of us are so socially isolated anyway that it's fine. There's definitely some travel that's been canceled for the channel this year because of it. But I I actually consider myself quite lucky when you consider basically every single, well, not every, but I would say 90% of these episodes are recorded remotely. So depending on what my job could be, it could be a lot harder. Yeah, yeah. I usually have a fair bit of travel as well for different things. And 
about half of the travel I want to do. And the other half of the travel is literally to just coddle people that won't do the work to make it unnecessary to do the travel in the first place. And now that they've sort of been forced to do the preparation, you know, they can't just walk into a meeting and like maverick through the meeting and then everybody leave. They actually have to put in some work and, and, and time. It's been really good because it's like, oh man, it turns out that things actually work better when we plan ahead and rather than just having meetings. And it's like, bingo. Yeah. So, all right. I don't know where you want exactly to start, but I think um, I, I'm going to just throw out this question that I throw in for any guest as kind of a baseline, because I think it's a fun question. So going back three years, you know, like, or even more, actually, let's talk about late 2016, before even Zen One came out. And there was a nonstop mountain slide of rumors about if it would be great or if it was the next bulldozer. I mean, you know, so so before we got any official numbers, like what, what were your expectations for AMD Zen 1? Because I think Zen 1 kind of ushered in the modern do-it-yourself era that yeah. we're in right now. Yeah, I think, um, you know, in, in that era, everything was kind of feeling sort of long in the tooth. You know, I, I experienced when AMD was launching like the uh, 64-bit extensions and like the Pentium 4, like the Prescott era. Mm-hmm. stuff and uh you know for a little while i had a, an intel system that was a dual celeron 300a like there was a couple people that made motherboards that would mm-hmm. would take like the, the celeron 300a and use it in a dual processor configuration because i guess intel forgot to turn that off or whatever it was not supposed yeah. to work but that it worked and the 300a had a little bit of cache but not a lot of cache and you could overclock him from 300 megahertz to like 450 megahertz and it was like Using a dual processor system, you know, every day in your desktop was like, holy crap, this is, inc- <laughs> this is insane. That was sort of life-changing computationally. And then AMD had their 64-bit extensions that I got to play with, like the, uh, the Athlon 64X2. And it was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. This is just incredible. And then Intel sort of came roaring back to life with the Core 2 Duo. They did the Core Duo, and that was a thing in mm-hmm. Japan. But all of their marketing was like all about the clock speed. But mm-hmm. that wasn't reality because it was like, no, you know, I've got my Prescott Pentium 4 here, or not even Prescott, even, even stuff older than that. And the clock speed is completely nuts. But my Athlon 64 uh, X2, that's only like 2.3 gigahertz or whatever, it's just running circles around it. So yeah. it's doing more per clock. The instructions per clock is just completely insane. And now this is, you know, part of everybody's vernacular. But back then... Nobody was talking about that. It was like more megahertz wins and no one was really like diving into it. Not a lot of press was really diving into it. I mean, some were, but it was a lot more niche, I think, than it is now. And so Zen 1 was like, is it going to be another Athlon 64X2? I don't, I'm really hoping. I don't know. But, you know, I don't know. But the, you know, the bulldozer architecture was feeling pretty dated and the architectures from Intel were feeling pretty dated. And I was thinking, even if Zen 1 is not Athlon 64X2, whatever Intel has got up their sleeve is going to be just as insane as like what, what became like Nihilum and, uh, you know, like yeah. the i7-920 because the i7-920 was, was an insanely exciting processor and a ridiculous amount of horsepower. And then they had the Extreme Edition where it was like, let's go, you know, six cores on this ridiculous mm-hmm. socket with triple channel memories. In other words, you're saying you weren't really sure what to expect then, right? You yeah. didn't really expect, because I because most people I talk to either say, oh, I knew they were going to be back in the game, 
which I mean, it's easy right now to look back and go, whoa, we knew AMD would have something good. But I mean, did we really know? (laughs) No, (laughs) no, We, we hoped. But there was no there was no guarantee. And that's what I was looking at. It was like, oh, I really hope this is going to be them roaring back to life. But there's a lot of you know room to have that middle of the market product where mm-hmm. it's not you don't need the highest end. Your profit is in volume. And it's like, how much room is there for for this, that, and the other? But you know, the Intel platform had sort of been out for a while. And you know, if we look back now at how many iterations of 14 nanometer there there has been versus AMD sort of just being this this quote unquote boring execution machine where they're just like, you know, relentlessly coming. It's it's Zen One was a the perfect foundation to build on. Oh, it has its warts. Don't get me wrong. Zen One had a lot of warts, but mm. for what they were doing, it's not bad. Well, yeah, it's funny to say boring execution machine because at this point, I mean, a lot. I mean, I really started my channel like a year and a half ago, and so like early 2019. I really mid 2019, a lot of my videos centered around just like emphasizing, no, really, guys, really, Zen 2 will be this good. It will come out this fall. And then really, guys, Zen 3 will come out the next year. And really, guys, Zen 4 will come out as usual, right? I don't know, somewhere around 14 to 18 months after that. And it feels like that I finally, now that we know Zen 3 is coming out in about, I don't know, like a month or so, like we finally know that it's time to stop doubting that AMD will actually bring things out when they say they will. I mean, yeah. at least the CPU team will, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and at least for my expectations, I mean, I was just like, well, you know, if they can get at least to Sandy Bridge IPC with eight cores at 95 watts, that would be awesome at like 3.5 gigahertz. Because, you know, you would see like those engineering samples you could buy that were like, you know, rejected six cores or something from Sandy Bridge or Ivy Bridge. And, you know, they'd be like three gigahertz, six cores. And I mean, they'd be great. And I was like, if AMD could just make this standard at 95 watts, they could <laughs> at least have some part of the market. And then it turns out, nah, it's better than Broadwell IPC. It's at four gigahertz. And it, yeah, it really uses that small amount of energy. And it's, you know, what, $400 for eight cores while Intel is trying to charge a thousand. Yeah, yeah. And it's just been more of the same boring execution, <laughs> boring, but also secretly very exciting uh, <laughs> execution the whole time since then. Yeah, it's funny to look back too because, like, I remember having a Haswell i7, you know, with just eight threads. And at the time, that felt like a ton of threads. I mean, it was kind of at the time. And, you know, but by the time Skylake was around, it was really fast. I mean, let's be clear, but it started to get this thing where I did have to kind of watch how many applications I had open at once. (laughs) And now that I have like a 3950X and Intel's even putting quad cores in their like 10 watt laptops, (laughs) like just the, the, the concept of having to mitigate how many programs are open as once is just basically gone for me. Like even in, even in a laptop, like we're to the point where even cheap laptops now are starting to have 12 threads. Yeah. Yeah, my favorite thing about the change in laptops is that I can leave my desk, my desktop a horrible mess and just close the laptop and then come back to the laptop. And when it wakes and sus- like from suspend resume, I don't have to bother even trying to open the applications anymore. Like I can just leave my virtual desktop in some sort of like horrifying, just, you know, face melting mess. Yes. And then I just put it to sleep and then I wake it up again and it's basically ready to work. 
And that was not possible on a four core. Like even a four core, like trying to do that, it would just chug and chug and chug because all those programs would wake up at once and demand the CPU. And it was just, it was really, it was really tricky. I had a Surface Pro 3 and later a Surface Book. So like two cores, four threads. Mm-hmm. And then I think four cores, four threads for power management. I think it was, I think one of those devices ended up being a true four core, but I think it was only four threads because it maybe it was the i5 version or something. And it was just marginal at best. Mm-hmm. Or if it was eight threads, you know, it would run at 1.5 gigahertz or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No good battery life. One thing that I think is very clear at this point, though, when it comes to AMD versus Intel is Intel had plans for their 14 nanometer Coffee Lake 6 core to come out. I think, if I remember correctly, it was supposed to come out in like 2019. And then they accelerated it six to eight months up once they realized how, how bad it was getting with Zen. And then I think they honestly thought they could kind of take their time and not have to rush out the eight core. But I mean, you know, it, it, I really think it wasn't until Zen Plus and con- base, what I hate this term, but confirmed, you know, I'm putting in, you know, parentheses, confirmed rumors or whatever. <laughs> confirmed boring execution machine. It's like, oh, man, they're moving. Like, what is a confirmed rumor? It's not really confirmed until it's confirmed. But like once we it really became clear that Zen Plus was this good again and Zen 2 really wouldn't be as good as we think, you know, 16 cores, that's when they finally took it seriously. And it almost, it almost feels like it's too late. I mean, do you think Zen 3, this is the subject I wrote down, is going to finally wipe the, like, it's going to be the final nail and Intel is kind of not winning almost anything anymore. I'm sure there will be something they'll win at still, but... I don't know. It could go either way because... You know, some of the Tiger Lake stuff is pretty is pretty interesting and pretty exciting. And, you know, there's a lot of saber rattling with it's like, oh, eight core Tiger Lake is coming. But, mm-hmm. you know, at the same time, if we just if we look at the incremental improvements from Zen to Zen plus to Zen two, and then we move straight from from Zen two to Zen three, there's a few things that, you know, that have leaked that seem like that they're, you know, major improvements over Zen three or over Zen two. But, you know, we don't know. I mean, it could it could go either way. You can totally because like, well, well let's say this, right? Not not to cut you off, but let's say it is 20% better in single threaded and latency is greatly improved. Like, let's just agree on an, a guess of what it's going to be, which I'm pretty by the way, I'm just saying like it's going to be that much better it is, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't like I know it is, but I don't know because you still have the edge cases, you still have the optimization edge cases. You still have all these weird uh, these weird issues that you run into just with like not Intel. So like I did a video um, on the Intel math kernel library and with like MATLAB, which used the math kernel library, the Intel yes, NKL, yeah. uh, you could add an environment variable for MATLAB and it would use the AVX code to code pathway no matter what. Whereas by default, the MKL checks, is this an Intel CPU? And if the answer is no, it does not use the AVX two pathway, even though the, you know, Zen processors support AVX2. Mm. All of them have since day one. AVX, yeah. it's, it, and it's a good implementation of AVX2. And so the 2020 update one from the MKL introduced new functionality in the MKL. So it's got little sort of micro kernels that give them more flexibility with optimization. But one of the consequences of that is that that environment variable no longer works. Fundamentally, the Intel MKL is a completely different uh, not a completely different, but a lot different architecture than it was last year. And mm-hmm. they have, they do actually have some optimized code pathways for Zen. 
but AVX2 is not one of them, which seems odd given that it seems like mm-hmm. that one would be relatively low effort to implement. And then 2020 update two came along and there was still no update. And it's like, okay, I'm going to do a video on this because surely this is not an oversight because in the, in the Athlon 64 X2 days, there were a lot of shenanigans being played yeah. by Intel and there's a lot more eyes on the situation now. And so I th- the, if they're doing that now, the optics of that is going to be very bad for them in a way that it wasn't a decade yes, ago. Absolutely. Like Intel, I, I keep saying that is like, and people go, well, Intel will just cheat. And it's like, they might try, but I, when I look at like how much the EU is cracking down <laughs> and how many people, like for Intel to try to do the same tricks again after being caught, I just don't think it's they're gonna be it's gonna be as easy to get away with as it used to be. No, it's definitely not because you know you've got an entire community of researchers. I mean, think about the number of people that were doing things where this like where a little tiny bit of performance mattered tremendously, and they understood the tooling necessary to build that. But what actually happened from those shenanigans ten years ago is the people that were working in those spaces and the people that those people trained that are now working in in the space. Yeah are on the lookout for that kind of shenanigans. Mm-hmm. So you have to invent a whole new kind of shenanigans that nobody has thought of before. And uh, I don't think we have that. I don't think we're playing that level of you know fourth dimensional chess. Well, well it's interesting you say that too, because about the um, y- you know edge cases for Intel, because uh, one, one person I talk to a lot, he says that it's easy to root for AMD and you would think the Red Ripper would always crush every you know, type of HEDT chip Intel has right now. But he says, actually, you would be surprised. Some of these 28 cores and such and 22 and 18 cores from Intel actually punch far above their weight in certain applications, like even things like AutoCAD due to the greater latency and support than you would think in that. I know AMD has 64 cores now, and even their 32 cores should wipe the floor with most things Intel has. But there are actually still applications where Intel... Like where, where, for example, I think an Intel 18 core can go to battle with a, you know, a Threadripper 32 core, surprisingly still. Yeah, I, that's definitely true. Um, I've got a, an Intel, a dual Intel Xeon 6258R, which is a kind of a, in my opinion, it's a rebadge refresh, refresh of the Platinum 8180s. It's a way for them to, to charge only $4,000 only um, (laughs) for a 28-core processor instead of the $10,000 of the Platinum 8180. Of course, the Platinum 8180, that'll work in, I think, an eight-socket system and the 6258Rs or dual-socket system. But I've got a a video I've been working on that is the the dual 6258R, so it's two times 28 cores, versus the Threadripper Mm -hmm. 64-core. And I was surprised at how many things the 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 dual Intel system came out ahead of the Threadripper system on. Now, the Intel system is a lot more complicated, and it's got tons more memory bandwidth. I mean, each one has six channels, six memory channels, and it's a two-socket system. It's very hard to build that, and it's very, very expensive as a result. The motherboard is a lot more complicated. The memory traces, layout, more memory, physically more memory. So it is shocking how much some things perform how, how like the performance delta between the two systems but for some things the threadripper is absolutely killing it. it i think it basically comes down to can everything fit in the l3 cache on the 3990 or mm. most of your workload fit in the l3 cache or are you is your data set basically bound to main memory because if your data set is bound to main memory the intel system eventually is going to win so if you're researching doing research or doing really complicated things, that latency that you're, you're probably talking about with AutoCAD 
just because it's if it's truly random, it's basically uncashable. And if the thing that you're working on is large enough to not fit in cash, yeah, then it's a penalty. But the 3990X has just an ungodly amount of cash. And it would be nice if memory were faster and there were more channels. Then we've got Epic. Well, right. So now they've got an eight-channel right Threadripper system out, the Threadripper Pro. And so let's say Zen 3 cuts latency penalties that it used to have to deal with in half and then also has, say, 10 to 20% more IPC. If they release something like that in an eight-channel Threadripper Pro system, do you think that would be enough to probably make up for all of those edge cases? I would say so. And there's, there's one case that would be interesting to ask your source about, and that is the 3950X. Because it's, it's only dual channel, but because it is so much less yeah. complicated, the, that versus, say, the uh, 7980XE or the 10980XE. So like the 3950X yeah. versus the 10980XE, because it's dual channel versus quad channel. There is, a, mm. there is physically a lot more memory bandwidth on the 10980XE, but for the specific applications that uh, is, you know the Intel system excels at, does the 3950 make up that difference or at least close the gap? Because if it does, that bodes well for Zen 3. Yeah, well, and it's, I know, and this is a different person, this person I've had on the podcast twice who's a server engineer, like he says that he's starting to just use 3950s X's for small <laughs> servers because he's like, well, it's not as good in some of these edge cases, of course, as the 10980XE, but it supports ECC memory. And it's it's so much cheaper. It's ridiculous. And and it's significantly more efficient. It uses half the energy. Yeah. So you almost have to ask yourself like what your energy costs are. And even if it was like even if in these edge cases, the 10980XE, let's say, is you know, 50% better, which is probably the most it's gonna get in any of these. It's using double the energy, probably. Yeah. So, like, is it really any better? Like, as you could argue, you're just going to underclock that one anyways. I guess uh, to get a specific point out of me, I think that for what you're describing, AMD's basically already won, even though there's maybe a few edge cases where they haven't, for X299, depending on what your use case is. Because you could go Threadripper, but there is there are penalties for doing that in some workloads. Yeah. But you could also go 3950X, where those penalties are less or eliminated completely. Eliminated to the point where if you're if you're doing you know apples to apples, it's it's basically the same, uh, or maybe slightly worse. And so with the natural progression, uh, if we're going to do that again, then yeah, it's gonna it, like everything is just going to be subsumed because there's no there's nothing left. There's nowhere else to go. You literally have gotten all of the performance that you can possibly get out of everything that remains because what's there even though you know even though intel can get by on less cash which by the way most people don't realize that more cash means more latency like you can't yeah. you can't really like you have to have well, more depending on which cash it is and like how it's utilized but yeah yeah well just just maintaining coherency you lose that's like mm -hmm. making sure that this processor that updated this thing in l1 cache and, you know, well, because it's still technically a victim cache, so something falls out and then blah, blah, blah. But, you know, when some other process goes to get that thing and it's like, oh, that's not in this thing. Is it in the, is it in the, did it fall out? Is it in the, is it in the victim cache? You're going to lose a few cycles just from housekeeping that much cash over a previous amount of cash. 
And that's one of the things where Intel has always won historically is that they, they really don't have a lot of cash, but it's very intelligent. It's not a victim cash. So when I look at these next reader mails, I think we actually went through a bunch of them. Like Valko Milev says, any news on the new Threadripper? I guess I'll just say it to be clear. Do you have any insider information on next-gen Threadripper? The Threadripper Pro or the Threadripper coming after like the I Milan? I assume he means Zen 3. Yeah, Milan-based. Well, I mean, no. Uh... I mean, I don't even know anything about Milan or or really anything anything that's upcoming. But it's fun to speculate about Milan because, you know, again, like everybody always talks about the um, top of the market, but most of this, so like being, you know, doing the computer janitor thing and it's like, okay, you know, university professor or working with this student on his PhD or working with this startup company on their thing or, you know, helping somebody solve some kind of a problem. Most people are not buying Platinum 8180s. They're buying servers yeah. at the middle of the market. And before Epic, you know, that was something like the Xeon 4114 or 4116. Those are relatively new models. But something in that in that range, because that was all that was affordable. And those are like 4, 6, 8, 10, 12 core Xeons. And now, uh, you know, getting a 16 core or a 10, 10 core, 16 core, 20 core Xeon is a lot easier. It's a lot cheaper. Mm-hmm. Especially when you're ordering from OEM, because they've got like their price on the website, but the price you actually pay is way less. Yeah. And in the past, way, way, way less. it used to be kind of close to the website price, and now it's not. And uh, we have we have uh, Epic Naples and Epic Rome to thank for that. But you know, Epic Rome, even with its relatively low clock speed, is a monster for server type applications. And a lot of those server type applications for the the stuff that you're talking about and machine learning, at least the kinds of stuff that I've run into mm-hmm. in academic settings and some business settings, it's been completely irrelevant because you can just buy so much more server for the same amount of money that nobody is constrained by the top-end parts. And so the reality is that we're just going to get whatever. We're going to build a server around a $2,000 or $2,500 processor. The total ecosystem might be you know, a $10,000 purchase. But we're going to build a server around a $2,000 or $2,500 purchase. How much computation can we get for that? And, you know, in the past, Intel had it segmented. They were like, do you want single thread speed or do you want a lot of cores? And AMD has basically been like, whatever, we don't care. Oh, you're only going to get one processor here? I have even more computational resources if you're going to get one processor. Because some, some jobs don't run as great on two sockets as they do on one. Just depends on what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's been really, frankly, just like democratizing, really, when it comes to compute power. It, I mean, if you're in the ultra high end, or it hasn't changed that much. But I mean, if you're an example that AMD did when they were like unveiling or rolling out, should I say, Rome, that I emphasized a lot was like small, like just something because it's something I think about a lot, like small movie indie studios. Like they were showing off a 64 core Rome rendering of frame in, I think it was the newest Terminator. Yeah. Or something. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people saw that and they're like, they would say, look at how it destroys this two socket Intel system by like whatever percent. And then they'd stop talking about it there. And I was like, you understand the significance though. Like, I don't remember the numbers. But it was something like if you had one of these, I know it's $4,000, but let's say you had one of these 64 core Threadrippers, it had enough horsepower to render like one frame of this photorealistic movie <laughs> in like 30 minutes. So I know that doesn't sound fast, 
But if you're an indie studio, like there's so many indie horror movies now and some that have like surprisingly good special effects. Now they'll only show the monster for two minutes at the end of the movie. (laughs) But think about what that means if you can render a frame in 30 seconds. You can set up the render start rendering on one workstation. A movie, an indie movie can afford one $10,000 PC for sure. And you can actually render something that looks like the newest Terminator (laughs) in a week. And before, you would have needed hundreds of thousands of dollars in equipment rendering for, you know, a month. And you just can't do that unless you work for, you know, a big Hollywood studio. And now some college kid can do it yep. for his film project. And like, like the, the, the change in what that means is just, it's insane. Yeah. It's a crazy amount of affordable horsepower in the middle. Like it, the, the top end really hasn't changed much, but how much you can get per dollar has changed dramatically. We still have constraints on scaling the problem. We still have constraints on even like the algorithms because it hasn't been long enough for scientists and mathematicians to devise really efficient algorithms for parallelization. You know, Amdahl's law catches up with you in just about every scenario. Mm-hmm. And you see that in games, too. I mean, uh, I'm actually pleasantly surprised how well some games can use my 3950X's <laughs> cores. Like, I think um, Mountain Blade Bannerlord, I was surprised to find that, like, in 1,000-person matches, it actually was loading up all 32 threads pretty well. <laughs> Um, which I guess is just because like, if you're going to program a game to utilize more than 12 threads, it's probably going to utilize far more than 12 threads if you put in that work ahead of time. Yeah. But um, so I guess we kind of answer this, but I'll just ask it for completionist's sake. Executable Fix asks, what above all else are you hoping comes from Epic Milan? Like where is Epic Rome lacking compared to the current Gen Zeons? I think we addressed it, but is there anything you think maybe you didn't address specifically? I would love it if Epic Milan runs better in configurations where you don't have uh, every memory channel populated. And I don't know if that means making the mm. memory controller more coherent or... Uh, coherent, not in the cache coherency sense, but just because it's like, it seems to be like two quad channel groups or four two channel groups or something in silicon. And then we just sort of rely on infinity fabric to take care of that for us. But in virtualization workloads, you can definitely expose some weirdness where depending on where things are in memory, things are slightly slower or slightly faster. And the software, most virtualization software seems to have been built with that. But this is something that I ran into on Epic Rome. This is something that was disastrously not great on Epic Naples, but on Epic Rome, it was much improved, but still not great. And that is when you got into a situation where you were on, say, the, this, like you've got four nodes in a socket and you've got two sockets. If this far node needed to get to this node over here, we're talking like 600 yeah. nanoseconds. And that's, uh, that's not an eternity. It's not great. <laughs> that's, uh, that's not, not great. Um, now, where everything has to go through Infinity Fabric, it's a lot more consistent. And even though it is higher, uh, because you know everything was all with, mm-hmm. you know, it was a different situation. We didn't have the IO die on Naples, and so the latency is better on average. But Naples actually has better latency in some scenarios. Yes. So, you know, most people don't realize that. And um, but the consistency means that you have a better, more consistent experience, which is actually better when you're actually Mm -hmm. using the darn thing. But I feel like that there's a lot you could squeeze out from having a really smart um, 
top-down memory control situation. And Intel, for their, you know, to credit Intel with their six-channel thing, it's really two, three-channel memory controllers. And um, you can actually do subnuma clustering. I'm like, so I get a W3175X. And subnuma clustering on that will get, I can shave the latency off even more. And then you can take advantage of stuff in the operating system where you can say, oh, this, this is two different, you know, non-uniform memory access nodes mm-hmm. with two triple channel memory controllers. And it completely changes the way the operating system tries to do scheduling and everything else. And depending on what you're doing, subnuma clustering will actually help you tremendously. But on Rome, the topology becomes extremely complicated if you start trying to do like one node per chiplet per socket and operating systems are not built to theoretically that would work but operating systems are not (laughs) not built to take advantage of that level of granularity at least not yet like one example i've found for um is actually this is like i think god this year's going by so fast i want to say it's like four months ago i had a guest on who does some pretty interesting like full how do i want to put it like sustained runtime overclocking. So he won't just overclock a 3800X to 5 gigahertz. He'll put like a way overkill liquid cooler, I mean, uh, you know, sub-zero cooler on it that will actually allow him to run it at 5 gigahertz for hours of gaming just so he can (laughs) confirm. Like, you know, not just a 3D mark thing. Oh, look, I took a picture of CPU-Z. It's like, no, this is how good it would be if we could game at 5 gigahertz with Zen 2. (laughs) And what he found is that Zen 2 basically stopped scaling in most games with higher clock speeds at about 4.5 gigahertz unless we could likely get the, what is it, the fabric clock absurdly higher to make up for it. And he found that, in fact, Zen Plus at 5 gigahertz is only about 5% worse than Zen 2 at 5 gigahertz. (laughs) But again, most people aren't at 5 gigahertz. and Well, in fact, nobody really is. And in terms of a consistent experience, Zen 2 is substantially better most of the time. But it is funny you say that because that's a gaming scenario where you can see the way they handle latency with an IO die did have a couple of drawbacks in edge cases. And I think I think Zen 3 is probably going to be that thing that brings, that just finally eliminates the edge cases. Like this is AMD rolling out. All right, we know what we did well here. We know what we did well there. This is the low-hanging fruit. We There was some much bigger fruit for us to fix beforehand though, guys. Yeah, you know. I sure hope so. I, you know, I was, for a time, I thought that, there was one way that AMD may have painted itself into a corner, and that was with the eight-core APUs. So oh. those are out. But you know, with the eight-core APU, we're basically talking about monolithic silicon again, and that's fast. The latency is probably better, and mm-hmm. you know, it's like we're take okay when we remove all the constraints of a notebook and we could just dump 150 watts into that. Is that going to be better than a 3700x, a 3800x, 3800xt? I think so. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I was going to get one and then something happened and blah, 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 they're hard to get. But yeah, we might be in a situation where the APU is going to be that much better because of the architectural difference in silicon. Yeah, this is a little off subject, but that kind of brings us to this, the, you know, a lot. I've heard a lot of people say, oh, you know, I, some people who are like, I don't know what you want to call them, like AMD naysayers or something would say something like, oh, the IO die chiplets are a crutch. AMD is cheating. But then they make Renoir where it's a monolithic die. Turns out it actually works pretty well monolithic, guys. <laughs> like I think people just forget that if AMD wants to, 
Yeah. TSMC is getting like 95% yields on seven nanometer. They can make a monolithic die just like Intel can if they want. Yeah. And I think there's some evidence they might start doing that more and more often because Zen just turns out to be good. It's not just good because of this or because of that. It's just, it is a good architecture. Yeah. And I think that's a pretty big threat to Tiger Lake <laughs> 8 core. Like I think a Tiger Lake 8 core is going to be a great gaming chip. But if that's out when there's a monolithic Zen 3, <laughs> I don't know. I would really be quite worried about where we can have our advantages in the market anymore if I was Intel at that point. <laughs> it's funny that you say that because um, the, uh, the video is not out yet, but a video that I did that's up on Floatplane and Patreon, the thesis of it is basically, is AMD Intel's best hope for keeping ARM off the desktop? <laughs> <laughs> No, that, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, I remember early 2019, you know, I, I, I would talk about this a lot, like, you know, RISC-V is coming, ARM is coming, they're going to make laptop chips, blah, blah, blah. And when I look at how insanely efficient Renoir is for having eight full cores, I go, I don't know if ARM or RISC-V can be more efficient. What I know is this is pretty damn impressive, even <laughs> if it's, you know, technically x86. So as long as AMD can keep innovating with this, you know, type of a product, I don't think ARM has a chance against this in, yeah. you know, high-end laptops. And, and when I say high-end, you know, I, I'm meaning anything above a $100 laptop because that's really where ARM has an advantage is well, really low-power devices. Well, that's where, one of the places where I had a blast with uh, Ryzen 3000. And that was like taking the 3900X and cramming it into like the Dr. Zaber Sentry. It's a little, you know, a little ITX machine. There's not room for much of a CPU cooler in there. And if you're going to run a 3900X, a 12 core processor at full tilt, you know, 140 amp, it's not, it's going to overheat. It's not going to work. But because of the bathtub curve and the power efficiency and the power usage, I can back off all of the AMD defaults a lot. And still get, you know, 85, 90% performance and still get a reasonably high single thread performance. It's more like 95% as good as, yeah. as native. And it doesn't even get warm. And that's fine. Yes. And the small form factor builders can totally do that. And that's totally an option. If you try to do that with like, say, an Intel 10600K, mm -hmm. it's not going to be a pleasant experience. Like it's really hard to get, even if you, if you set the CPU there, there's still a bathtub curve, but it's moved farther up. And with the AMD processor, the bathtub curve is much lower. So at 150 watts, like if you move from 100 watts to 150 watts, you've really gained very little. And when you move from like yeah. 65 watts to 100 watts, the gains there are pretty good. But, you know, you can just sort of dial that in wherever you want. And if you've got your processor at, at 65 watts, you really haven't given up half your, your computational horsepower. You've really given up more like 15%. Well, so yeah, it's funny you bring that up because you you know this idea that AMD is the best thing to stop ARM from killing Intel <laughs> laptops. I mean, that may come at a problem of AMD killing Intel laptops because I was really excited for Lakefield. You know that one Sunny Cove core plus four Atom cores, three D stacks, little baby CPU Intel had took forever for it to actually come out, and it's okay. I guess it, it's as expected. It is what it is, but it's not magic, and. As impressive as Lakefield might be at about five watts, when I look at a 15-watt um, Renoir with eight cores that's running about as well as a 105-watt <laughs> Zen Plus, you know, yeah. 2700X, I go, so this is, okay, so this is using 15 watts with eight cores. They can TDP it down to 12 watts. 
what's to stop AMD from just cutting this in half and giving it four compute units and four cores, eight threads of Zen 2? I mean, you can't tell me that's not going to run circles around Lakefield just by being a half Renoir. And then let's also say, like, what if I knew Lenovo was testing something called Lucian right now that was exactly that? But uh, I won't confirm that yet. (laughs) (laughs) That's sort of basically where we go is, do you want to take your power budget and run, you know, a couple of threads insanely way fast? Or do you want to take your power budget and spread it across all of your cores? Which, Which thing is more efficient? And eight cores with 15 watts, if you've got work you need to get done, that is going to be more efficient. But single thread is still where a lot of laptop performance is. And so instead of having this, you know, one big core and then a bunch of little cores to try to do that, you can just dump all of your power budget into one or two cores. With, and you literally didn't have to do anything on silicon. You don't even have to move the process, which is, uh, you know, there's a huge penalty that comes with moving it from one of your cores to one of your other cores and the cache invalidations yes. and the security aspect of all of that. Whereas if it's like, okay, you, you, you three, you go to sleep, give all of your power budget to this core. Nothing had to move. No data had to move. Everything can run in place. That's a much better, cleaner design. Yeah, and that's why it's like, on paper, I think this like big little initiative Intel's moving with and 3D stacking could be awesome if they make it, <laughs> like, but it's not out. And if it's and if AMD's just so ahead with both their node and architectures at this point that they can just take their 15 watt chips and cut them in half and then make them use five watts, it's like, yeah, Intel big little was a good idea, but it's not out yet. And AMD just cut. And their and their laptop CPUs are twice as good as yours, and now they're selling ones that are half as big. So like what? So there's you, again, you snooze, you lose. You're taking forever. The cool thing with Big Dot Little is that it's we don't have to wonder if it if it'll work. It absolutely does. I mean, that's what is in right. the Apple right. ARM ecosystem. Basically, it's how it's how you can pick up an iPad after a week, and the battery life has barely moved, and yet it has downloaded all of your thousands of messages that you got in a week, which yeah. is genuinely very impressive. But mm-hmm. like, take a look at um, like connected standby. Do you remember connected standby? Remember, like, I mean, it was it was Computex. Everything goes back for me goes back to Computex 2018 because I did the Intel keynote at Computex in 2018, and it was mm-hmm. like Intel's not a processor company anymore, for for better or worse, for whatever that was. And um, connected standby was one of the things where they were like, "Look, we want you to have this experience with your laptop." And I don't know if you've heard of connected standby in current laptop marketing. But for me personally, even on newer devices, that functionality is not there or it's a dumpster fire. So like... No, now I remember what you're talking about. Yes. And I guess sometimes it seems like my laptop works doing that. But most of the time, it just, I turn it, I try to like go out of standby and it turns out it crashed. Or I try to go (laughs) out of standby and, you know, it turns out for some reason the Wi-Fi card wasn't working when it was supposed to be. It does not seem to work. Right. No, it doesn't, you know. Yeah. You know, assume for a second that that's not just some sort of half-baked feature that marketing came up with and assume that people well, have been... That's likely at Intel, first of all, but... <laughs> <laughs> assume that engineers at both Microsoft and Intel have been putting work into that. How do we have a, a product development ecosystem where something as simple as connected standby, and I say as simple as with a giant asterisk because yeah. all of the underpinning necessary to do that 
on an iPad is is actually hugely complicated. But I'll come back to that. And yeah, it's in, not like I could do it. You know, yeah. you know, I well, couldn't write the code. But actually, you could. But I'll come back to why in a second. So it's you know, it's it, the, there's this huge elaborate mechanism that underpins that functionality, and it is is absolutely the job of the operating system to expose that and make that to where you can get at that and blah blah blah. But Microsoft controls the operating system and the Office applications if you're using Outlook, let's say, to do that. And uh, or even the Windows Mail program, which is built in, or any, any of that other stuff. And Intel controls the hardware. And this was definitely something that Intel and Microsoft, they were on stage and was like, we're going to do this. It's going to be great. It's going to be just mm-hmm. like an iPad. When you turn an iPad on, the battery's not dead, and it's got all your email there. Like, you don't have to wait for it to boot up. Mm-hmm. It's instant on, and it's not instant on, you know, plug your laptop in every other day. It's instant on, you know, if you go a weekend, yeah. you leave the office on Friday, and you forget to plug your laptop in, you come in Monday, you're going to have at least half battery and all your email is going to be there. It's already going to be downloaded. Like I can do with my phone. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It, it's, uh, but we still can't do that. And big dot little on Intel has me believe that the reason for that is hardware. And I don't think that's true. I think it's software. It is absolutely software. No. Yeah. But here's how you can build that. If you have Xcode, all of the stuff necessary for any developer with any application to do that is in Xcode. It is easy to do. If you have any experience in the, in the Xcode ecosystem, again, I really don't like Apple as a company and any of the predatory things they do and blah, blah, blah. But if you want to make use of connected standby functionality in your, your uh, application writing a Mac program, all of the stuff necessary to do that is there and is not impossible to take advantage of. If you try to do that with Visual C++ on Windows, Visual Studio, .NET, you know, C-sharp.net or, or, or any, it's, it is a dumpster fire. They can't even get it right with Office 365. Wow. And Office 365 has a lot smarter people working on it than anything else. And so if the ecosystem is that complicated, if we can't stand up a feature like that, if Microsoft and Intel mm-hmm. can't come together and make a feature like that work, then it's no wonder that Apple would abandon x86. Yes. You know, and yeah, and I, I don't know if you saw these, re- I'm sure you saw these reports like that, a lot of people, like someone from Apple said, I mean, the reason we left Intel really was we just could not get software to work on their processors or or we couldn't work, maybe you might put it this way, we couldn't work with Intel well enough to get the software to work to the level we wanted. And we tried for years and there were bugs and issues. And at a certain point, we they just said, we're building our own CPU because we'll be able to make sure it does exactly what we want it to. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, the place where I have some intimate experience with that is like Thunderbolt. Thunderbolt, PCI Express mm-hmm. over USB-C, it's a dumpster fire. And, you know, Apple was like, oh yeah, Thunderbolt. Somebody in the audience asked about Thunderbolt when we were launching our old Macs. Oh, I guess, yeah, we're to- totally going to support Thunderbolt. But I'm going to tell you right now, they're going to support something that's going to be called Thunderbolt in the future, but that Thunderbolt, that future Thunderbolt is not modern Thunderbolt. Because modern Thunderbolt mm-hmm. is made out of bailing wire and duct tape. And it has a lot of bugs. And there's a lot of hardware out there that has specific errata that the device is expecting. And so all of this baggage of w- these workarounds and bugs and IOMMU and everything else, the developer notes that Apple has already released for Thunderbolt is like, here's our IOMMU. Here's how we're going to do DMA isolation. Here's how we're going to avoid the security issues of like the old school firewire. But if you read between the lines, those old devices physically cannot work if Thunderbolt is that secure because their their physical silicon is not up to that standard. So they're basically telling everybody that, hey, you got 
fancy Apollo mixing board? Yeah, it's not going to work. Sorry. Yeah. I think I'm going to switch gears a little bit here to a reader mail <laughs> since we're talking about mobile so much right now. Uh, Cats342 goes, what do you think the future of small form factor PCs and laptops will be in regards to ease of use and power? The smallest small form factor uh, desktops and laptops seem to be getting more similar in size and power, but have vastly different target markets. And the recent advancement in APUs with both Intel's Tiger Lake and AMD's Remoir seems to indicate a shift away from discrete GPUs, which Tom has mentioned a bazillion times in the past. I would love to hear your thoughts about this, Wendell. What's, this, is, this fits with everything that we've been talking about. This fits really well because I think that my vision of the mobile future is that all of my applications are basically running in their own. Like if I had, if, if we were doing this from the, you know, uh, from the top down and the hardware limitations and software limitations, like the, we've, we've got an, an infinite army of smart people at our disposal. They're going to implement the silicon to my will. They're going to do the software to my, my will. What we would be doing is all of my individual applications would be running in virtualized sandboxes and the hardware architecture of my desktop PC, my laptop, my phone would be such that I can migrate running virtual machines between all of my devices. So, Well, I mean, yeah, that would be a dream come true if, if we could do that easily, yeah. <laughs> it's crazy because this... Holding up a phone right now. This is an Asus Zenfone 2 and this is an mm-hmm. x86 Atom and I absolutely could do that experimentally. We're about to talk about that in a podcast soon. That's funny you bring it up. And I absolutely could migrate running virtual machines from this to that to the other. But the other nice thing about that is data privacy and data security. Like the promise of Android was sandboxed Java virtual machines. That's part of what Java promises. And it's not implemented that way. And it's very easy for applications to surreptitiously trawl things they should not be trawling. But Theoretically, one of the architectural features and advantages of Android with the Java, the you know, it's, granted it's Dalvik or was Dalvik and then it became the other thing, but one of the whole ideas around the whole Java and sandbox isolation thing is that Google would have full transparency into literally what every application is doing. And so our hardware architectural, software architectural, you'd be able to protect people's privacies, privacy in the data and things like that. Because obviously if I'm running my banking application, in one virtual machine, that's going to be a lot more sensitive than you know if I'm just goofing off on Facebook or whatever in another yeah. virtual machine and so on and so forth. And so I can set the properties of those kinds of things. If you've ever used, you know, there are privacy virtual machine sandbox oriented things out there, operating systems that are that are out there that, that do this quite well. They put a border around the windows and it's like you know green, yellow, red. It's like when you close this, it's going to be completely disposed. Uh, windows has uh, Windows Sandbox, which is great but extremely poorly implemented. If you turn that on, things like VirtualBox or Hyper-V stop working, and it's just like, Microsoft, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? But for things that where you need a lot of GPU or CPU or whatever, it's not going to really matter. We already have the technology where if I have a GPU in my desktop and I want to stream a game from my desktop to my phone or wherever, it's reasonably low latency mm-hmm. enough that it, it just works. And the whole virtual machine API thing... I could just have all of that computational horsepower at my disposal, no matter what I have, and without being dependent on the cloud. Now, Google would love to sell you a Stadia subscription mm-hmm. where you don't have a desktop. You have something in the cloud. and That doesn't work. Yeah, and we may be forced to do that. Like As part of the business model, it's like, we're going to give you a Chromebook, but if, I, if you want a 64-core Threadripper, you're going to have to subscribe to it in the cloud because that's the only thing that we offer. We're not there yet, but that may be where the market goes. But in terms of like end-user experience being the best, 
having your applications migrate between devices is going to be the easiest experience. And mark my words, that is the first place that Apple is going to go when they get ARM on laptops. Because architecturally, there's nothing really that's limiting them to do that. And it might not be, you know... Yeah, they already push that type of an experience yes. right now. Like, they're already trying to push, oh, you can receive iMessages to your Mac, right? It doesn't just have to go to your phone. Yep. And you, when you, you know try to video call someone it, it can be on any device it's not just you know using your phone yeah so yeah that would be i mean it's pretty obvious that's what they want to do and actually yeah you bringing that up not to cut you off but yeah it's that's probably a big thing is they just couldn't get it working with intel probably yep so you do your stuff and you live in your application and you you it's i call it nesting it's like you nest so I've got my, you know, I've got my, my, you know, startup scripts and stuff like that that go back 10, 15, 20 years in some cases. And so I've nested and I want to carry that with me. And so people are doing that on, on iPhone. Like it just, it, it kills me just how fundamentally wrong Google gets things. Like I've got an old Android phone and I've got a new Android phone. I want my, my new Android experience to be like my old Android experience. Not happening. On an iPhone, it's like I've turned on literally every iCloud option and every application that I use has good iCloud integration. I get a new iPhone and I restore the backup and my new iPhone is exactly, exactly the same as my old iPhone, like down to the pixel. Now, now this may be a, a dumb idea or thing to bring up, but I mean, one thing I would say and one thing that I, I constantly bring up when people talk about like offloading computations to the cloud is with how fast, again, finally, we're innovating in performance per watt and die space. I mean, I could make the argument, though, that we don't need to do as many things remotely when we can shove an eight core and five watts. Yes. You know what I mean? And as long as we can continue to innovate on that, and in fact, what we're expecting, we expect, right? It seems like seven nanometers clocks, you know, 16, 12 nanometer, 14 nanometer, blah, blah, whatever you want to call that, that, you know, era, like they got way faster than 28 nanometer. Um, and seven nanometer seems a little faster than 16 nanometer. But it sounds like five nanometer is going to be like just this hair bump at most over seven. But density is going to continue to increase. So I think what we're going to see is, hey, we're kind of done increasing clock speeds. Uh, but for what we can continue to do for the next five years is still double the amount of cores <laughs> in the same amount of space while lowering power. And so if you can, it's just not crazy to think. Like right now, we have a 15-watt 8 core with Zen 4. I don't see why we can't have a 15-watt 16 core. And then with Zen 5 and 3 nanometer, I'm sure we can get to a 32 core on 15 watts. If you can do that, I don't see why we need to do things in the cloud when my phone's as strong as, you know, what an HEDT system used to be five years ago. So if, if you want a preview of how that... Although I know those are getting stronger too. Well, no, if you want a preview of exactly how that's going to shake out, the new hotness in the server industry is called edge compute. And so the idea is you move all of this stuff to the edge, but it's exactly like what you're talking about because most of what companies need actually need is stuff that can happen at the edge. And so you see the big Amazon AWS customers able to deploy the AWS API on on-prem hardware, but they still have the ability to move to the cloud. Microsoft with, with Azure and their stuff and the things that they offer in a commercial setting are basically already offering the same thing. So you can have you know, your cloud Active Directory, but you still have the, the edge compute. And this gives you the best of both worlds. So like you know, Azure's DNS can be crapping the bed for the 85th time this year, and you know, quote-unquote Azure services are down, but your edge compute is still working. And so what you're talking about is basically edge compute in your phone and your laptop. 
or kind of like what I was talking about with the virtual machine where my phone and my laptop really don't have a high-end GPU, but my desktop does. And so most mm-hmm. of the edge compute that I'm doing, the user interface, this, that, and the other, I'm actually doing on the edge. But when I need that GPU resource, I've got a low enough latency connection back to my computer that I can do whatever the GPU needs to do. The GPU can handle it. But I have a little bit of a GPU you know, client side for handling whatever it is or acceleration or just decompression playback or, or whatever. And yes, absolutely more cores will help. And more cores means that more of that computation is happening client device side. But companies also have to want you to do that computation client side. And so I think a lot of companies, especially Google, and to a lesser extent, Apple, will push back against doing computation at the edge unless they absolutely have to, just to maintain control and lock in. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me ask this more directly then. Like, what do you see happening just with, like, and I, and I think um, with the last reader mail, I asked if that was an interesting point that we have desktops getting smaller and smaller frankly, because there was no point to making big desktops the second they killed SLI, if you ask me. Um, All you're doing is gaming, at least. And then we have laptops kind of getting higher performance in a 15-inch form factor. Like, At what point do you see laptops just pushing out discrete GPUs as an option in most form factors. I th- like, I, I mean, I think it's already, ha- like how soon? if you look at the market, it's already happening. You know, the shift from desktops to laptops has already been dramatic. Uh, there's been a shift because of the current global situation in, t- in laptop sales. And I think that is something the desktop market is never really going to recover from. The number of mm-hmm. laptop sales that there has been in 2020 is just astronomical. And mm-hmm. I really don't think the desktop sales are ever going to recover. I think that the marketing people haven't done a good enough job to explain to users that they actually can have their cake and eat it too. You can have a laptop with a discrete GPU. I use a you know an external dock, Thunderbolt dock, mm-hmm. with an external GPU with a laptop when I travel or whenever, whenever I'm going to be holed up in a hotel for more than a day or two. And I'll take my external GPU dock with me so that I can have a better gaming experience with an external GPU because they're just... Oh, yeah. I don't think that... I don't think we're going to get to a point where... I'm okay with, you know, whatever's happening just inside the laptop. Maybe, but I kind of doubt it because it's always been terrible since since the '90s. It's always been terrible compared to. It's a lot better now than it was then, though. <laughs> can we at least admit that? I don't know because I had uh, I get the Voodoo Two, and it was like, can I have a Voodoo Two and a laptop? And it's like, oh, there's only like two options, and it's not great in either in either scenario. But uh, it has it. You know, GPU horsepower has gotten better. But a lot of the computation is happening in in the GPU in general already. So like the GPU is becoming more sort of general purpose. And that is probably going to shape laptop sales as well. Or whatever whatever we refer to as laptops. Yeah. I mean, I I, I just have to say like, um, you know, like I've seen some evidence that... So like we know that the Xbox Series X is going... They built their APU to both be used in Azure... X Cloud, they're going to use that. Like that's like when people ask why does you know why is it you know running at fixed clocks and so efficient? It's like well they built the Xbox Series X to be a really efficient cloud APU, and then they're also putting it in a console. Yeah. That's smart. Yeah, I mean you know but that explains why there were some I don't know I, compromise is a negative sounding word, but it's you know there's like you know they built it to do two things, and I think there's some evidence. We'll see if this turns out to be true that the Series S actually has an APU that's built to be used maybe in a Surface book eventually and its console, you know? That'd be and, nice. And people, I, yeah, I'll, I, I would probably buy it, to be honest, depending on how much they charge for it. But, um, and it would be so easy to market, right? Like the portable Xbox. But I mean, 
I, I think like we're getting to a point though, like where people ask, like, you know, these APUs and the consoles aren't that big. And I go, well, you know, if they could put the PS5 in a laptop, I don't know that I do need a desktop. I don't know that we're not that far away from having 16-inch laptops <laughs> that do 90% of what you would want to do in a desktop. Again, if you can have 16 cores and something that can run games in 4K, and if I mean, we're not quite there yet, <laughs> but one more die shrink. You don't think that would tempt you at all to just go with that? I mean, you can still have your dock. You can still have your dock at home. I think that the you're absolutely right. That's where laptops will be, but will desktops be that much farther along? And mm. I think the answer is probably yes, as long as we need that computation in the data center. As long as a, a gaming card can sure. be subsidized by the development of, of a quasi-equivalent quote-unquote GPU for the data center, it's fine. But the moment those products diverge, desktop gaming is going to suffer. Well, you know, speaking of products that were clearly really intended for the data center, let's talk about NVIDIA Ampere. <laughs> it's out. Oh, except you can't buy it. Oh, I'm sorry. It, you know, it has 36 teraflops for gaming. I mean, <laughs> it is. It's out. It's it's kind of exciting. It's perhaps not up to the hype that, uh, that NVIDIA promised, but it is a substantial upgrade over the 2080 Ti. I read your thing, which is really interesting uh, in terms of the, like uh, the price manipulation article. Yeah, now. I don't, I don't know. I would definitely. There are parts of that that I, I could definitely say yes, absolutely. And there are parts of it where it's like I, I don't know. One thing for sure is that like local retail chains, they really didn't get very many, and so it's like, oh, this is an unprecedented launch with unprecedented demand. It's like, dude, the local no. the local micro center got fifteen. The, the local micro yeah. center usually gets like a hundred. Mm-hmm. So. Well, and I mean, all I can say is, I mean, I, I wouldn't have run with this story, which you know, for those, you know, I mean, there'll be a link in the description. It's called NVIDIA's Ultimate Play. Um, I I would not have run with that <laughs> if I was not sure of the data and the sources I was talking to. And And all I can say to people is, you know, since then... A lot of local retailers have reached out and including people at OEMs that are working with. It's true, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so that's all I'm going to say about that. I think the one thing some people might try to pick apart with it, especially though, is like the whole performance of the Founders Edition oh, yeah. versus the Adam Board Partner cards. And to it, you know, because what I said is it seems like they are binning the Founders Edition to outperform what you're actually going to be able to get in most of the AIB models. And the AIB models are, as we're seeing, getting a much higher street price, I would argue by design, compared to the Founders Edition that you could never buy. So really, <laughs> what is the MSRP? But um, what, what, when people say, well, there's these add-in board partner cards already that are performing just as well, if not a little better than the Founders Edition, I would just emphasize... Right, how much energy are they using? Because the Founders Edition uses 320-watt stock, and most of these are using 350 watts. Yeah. And also, the Founders Edition, because it needs to, fits in a two-slot you know, form factor in OEM cases without hassle. A lot of these, like, like the Asus Tough, this is like a three-slot, three-fan monstrosity. It's like, guys, look, uh, I was talking about like, an a- a- AIB card that was the same size as the founders. I'm not in any way surprised that if you remove power limits yeah. and give it a triple fan, it outperforms the <laughs> founders. I want to be clear about that. Well, the, the the basic you know thermodynamics of the situation is the founders card directly exhausts air to the outside of the case. So mm-hmm. no matter what testing you're doing, 
it's like, oh, even though the the you know wattage is 320 watts or 350 watts or, or whatever, it, yeah. it really doesn't affect the temperature of the case all that much. And it is dumping some heat inside the case, but it's yeah. also dumping a lot of heat outside the case. So it's really not any worse, maybe slightly better than a 2080 Ti in in terms of thermals, even though the power usage is really high. But the to- like the total amount of heat that's being dumped into the room that that's in, it's the same. Thermodynamics says it's the same. So yeah, I know. So, uh, but you know, inside the case, that might not be true, just because that is exhausting it out the back. And that's that's one of the things that I run into. Like every now and then, we'll do a build video, and I will use a, a, a radial blower uh, cards because I'm putting like two or three of them. Uh, in a, in a machine, and they're like, oh, you know, you should really use something that's you know like the triple fan, whatever. And it's like, no, yeah. those fans are dumping all of their heat inside the case. These, you know, uh, radial blower fans or just blower fan. Well, I mean, everything's a blower fan, but radial blower fans are dumping their heat out the back of the case. Yes. and yeah, they're louder, and yeah, but you know, for machine learning and crap like that, we just it's hard to have a case that can manage that much heat production strictly inside the case i mean if you have multiple cards you're talking about thousands of watts yeah. sometimes just being dumped into a small box i mean I, and i know because i used to do i used to do a lot of mining i mean i still do some mining and i used to and so you know maybe while i'm playing metro 2033 you know like what i mean yeah. at this point what is that almost a decade ago um like i'd be like well I, I you know i got these cards for mining but i suppose if i'm taking a break from class why not run metro <laughs> with three cards in crossfire and i found that the triple you know the dual or triple fan designs really if you put them next to each other the blower fans worked just as well actually yeah because you know it's at that point it's just how much heat are you dumping out yeah and that's what the Founders Edition has to deal with. People, again, these open test beds where it's like, oh, the, you know, this AIB card cools better. It's like... <laughs> Not technically. The, founder, the Founders Edition, guys, is, that fan on the Founders Edition was expensive because they managed to cool a 320-watt card effectively in a two-slot design yeah. uh, that's way smaller than the AIB model. That's why it's expensive. If you wanted to do a scientific test on which is a golden sample or whatever, you'd have to put the same cooler on both cards in the same circumstances. Yeah. So, Yeah, I think in terms of like AIB quantity versus Founders quantity, I don't think that the Founders edition of the 2080, like the, one, the 2080 series, I mean, granted, they were fabulously more expensive, but um, I don't think that the, the Founders quantities were all that high either. Like in, just in terms of like, I, just, mm. I, I don't I don't know, but I don't think that any of the like because like looking at the web, like the the web stuff, uh, you know, so full confession. And I think one of your questions is about this is like, you know, I don't think they did enough to stop bots. Mm, it turns out I'm one of those guys that uses yeah. bots. I don't use it for scalping, but I ha- absolutely. Jeremy's had that question. He was going to ask, you know tinfoil hat time did nvidia have bots to do this and it's like well no i don't think they bought their own cards and he says so but what's going on is this maliciousness or indifference i um i usually use bots to buy things that are um uh difficult to get i did that with threadripper uh i mm-hmm. accidentally bought two threadripper 3970x's because i had <laughs> i had multiple ones set up and Mine is set up so that if it does encounter a captcha or something like that i just get a notice on my phone and it's literally just a VNC session. So like I can tap a link and it's like, oh, okay, the machine that was running that, I can just hit the link and then do the captcha from my phone once it thinks mm. it's found a thing or whatever. And that usually works because most sites, when you add it to the cart, 
You know, if you, so you're the bad guy, though, for everyone listening. Well, you're the bad guy buying up all their Ampere cards. Although, let's be clear, guys, there were like almost none you could buy anyways. But Yeah, I tried it. Well, I wasn't able to buy one. I was watching NVIDIA, mm-hmm. uh, NVIDIA's website, Newegg, and EVGA. And the uh, script is only set up to check for stock about every five minutes. Um, and it started at, it started at 7 a.m. on whatever day that Thursday. was. Yeah, Thursday. And uh, that was, you know... NVIDIA's website, I was worried about because the structure of the buy, the structure that you, you get a, you get a, it, the bot is not very smart, first of all, but uh, I was worried about the NVIDIA website specifically because of the way the notify me thing was versus some of their other products, which were out of stock, but not a 3000 series. And the actual HTML source showed that it was a, a pre release product. Even after mm-hmm. you know launching at like nine fifteen or whatever in their press release, they said, "Oh, we had unprecedented traffic. We didn't know. We didn't really, you know, we we weren't we weren't planning or whatever." But to me, it looks like the the Nvidia website went straight from notify to to out of stock. That's what Cortex told me too. He's another tech tuber <laughs> I talk to a lot. He said he was watching the Nvidia website for Ampere, and he said it it basically. He said I, I forgot the. You know, all of the details, but he said, yeah, he looked at the website code as well. And he was just like, as far as I can tell, it was never in stock. Yeah. I don't, my, my bot didn't catch anything on any NVIDIA website at all. And, um, micro center only got 15. So they had people camping out the day before. Well, micro center only got 10, but it was 10 and five. So that tells you the launch quantities. And, um, you can check that on the website, like every micro center everywhere. Yeah. You can literally just go on the website and it'll, yep. it'll show you exactly how many are in stock. It's not privileged information, which is a great transparent thing to do. Uh, Best Buy was the only one that was a little sketchy because you could actually query the stock the day before. And it was like, this product's coming soon, oh. but you can, you can kind of cheat a little bit on the website and you can kind of get an idea for stock. And the local Best Buys had like a pending status and it was like, that's interesting. And so uh, I just, I know some of the people there and I just called them and they're like, yeah, we're not shipping those to retailers. And it's like, but it's launch day. And I'm like, yeah, we know we're not, we're not, we're not, we're, it's listed on the website, but we're not, we're not shipping those to retailers. So there was definitely something really weird going on with that. Newegg had a few for sure, mm-hmm. but I just wasn't very aggressive with it. So, yeah, I mean, I wasn't either. I, I, all I can say is, um, well, it's, you know, I, I wasn't aggressive though, because I wrote this article. So I just knew ahead of time. I'm like, I, Again, I wouldn't have run this article unless I was sure. So I knew I wouldn't get it. <laughs> like I was like, I just knew ahead of time, guys. I'm not even gonna like. And and you know, and I'm someone who got like three or four Vegas the first week it came out, when everyone was saying that was a paper launch. And I'm like, no, that wasn't a paper launch. I got four of them, so they definitely exist. And it and it seems like just yeah, unanimous that. The, even for people like you know, like you who know how to try to get something on release, <laughs> uh, way better than most people do. It just you weren't able to, but like let's forget that then for a second and say like what do you what do you think about its performance? You know, both I would say both rasterization performance, ray tracing performance, and then just performance per watt. The um, I, well, and I'll also say that it wasn't my goal to like buy them up to resell them or for mining or anything. Literally, just wanted to buy oh, one. I know. Just, I know, but I know, but people will be listening and be like, Reed! it's like no, you don't understand. Just the one, just wanted the one, maybe two. Mostly the one. And people, I I did buy Vegas to mine, but I want to point out that I bought, you know, four. I didn't buy a thousand (laughs) to put them in a warehouse in China. Those were the people causing the problem, not me, in my own defense. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Uh, Yeah. But no, in terms of performance, on the one hand, it is 
it is legit, very impressive performance. But I was a little disappointed they got rid of USB-C with power. Uh, but I have a feeling the main reason they did that is power budget because that would have upped the power budget of the yes. card another 75 watts. So 375 watt card, my goodness, no, ain't happening. I was told by someone that it, they just didn't, no one was using it. But later, I, you know, some people said uh, they couldn't have powered it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even if they want to, even, it is true probably that no one is using it, but it would be nice to have things go that direction. Although another port that looks like USB but isn't quite USB is, is probably like bad for regular people because it's like all these ports look the same, but they all do different things. Yeah. Yes. You know, it's easier. Is it though? I don't know. Um, so the performance is, is quite good. And uh, the pricing is really good, especially considered, you know, NVIDIA got a lot of criticism for the pricing of like the 2080 Ti. And it seems like the pricing is, is a lot better genuinely for the performance you get and all this other kind of stuff. I think that once the, the gearheads dig into it and they start looking at some of the mm-hmm. RTX stuff, they're going to find that a lot of the RTX performance improvement, like the 2X RTX performance improvement, a lot of that is coming from ATI upscaling and driver optimization more so than the hardware. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. The hardware is going to be better. And maybe the hardware, and maybe there's some stuff they found where it was like, oh man, if we had, you know, a fast transform to this and we need this piece of silicon to do it. But dollars to donuts in terms of like twice the Minecraft performance with RTX, I bet you they're using AI upscaling or some kind of like the you know the new NVIDIA like the DLSS thing yeah. or whatever and it's just software off it's just when you're using this other stuff it yeah. makes it run more efficiently anyways yeah i mean i i had all of these ampere leaks months ago you know and and it, you know like most leaks it turns out half of what i had was correct <laughs> <laughs> like but one thing that i got really wrong besides as far as i can tell so far tensor memory compression was the ray tracing performance you know and i don't run with any leak that doesn't have multiple sources that i think are telling the truth you know and but sometimes you'll have three sources say the same thing but one source has these extra details and you go oh all of these other things lined up so i should also put these details in there and it just turns out those details were frankly I mean, let's be honest, bullshit problem. <laughs> so, you know, one of those things, and you know, the, the very nice thing about this Ampere rumor cycle, though, is at least now I know who always knows what they're talking about. But, um, you know, ray tracing, I expected it to be a lot better. And I, I pro- maybe I should have been more uh, scrupulous of like claims that it would be over twice as good as Turing. But at the same time, I thought to myself, it has to be over twice as good or ray tracing is still a gimmick, right? <laughs> and that's my problem. Really, fundamentally, it has nothing to do with being right or wrong. It's, I just can't believe, I really thought Ampere would at least aim for much more ray tracing performance than this because if you keep cutting your frame rates in half when you turn it on, it's just, it seems stupid to me. I'm sorry. If you look at the number of CUDA cores that are on the processor or are on the 3080 and the number of CUDA cores from, say, like the 2080 Ti and the 2080 and the 2080 Super and clocks, and you just you try to normalize that as much as you can, the amount of performance gain that you get on the 3080 for the number of cores that it has is not in line for whatever reason. Yeah. And is that is that Omdahl's law biting us in the butt again? Or is that more performance left on the table? I think it's, I mean, it's probably a little bit of both, right? But I think Omdahl's law, right, is what's going on here. It seems like it. And that might explain why it does better at higher resolutions, or at least it seems like it does better yes. at higher resolutions. But no one's really gaming. Um, no one's really gaming at 4K. 
But maybe if you use the CUDA cores for other things, it seemed like they were hinting about that a little bit in the press event where they were saying, okay, every other frame is rendered this other way. So you can have two different pathways. It's like, okay, here's all of our rendering stuff running on this group of CUDA cores. And this group of CUDA cores is actually doing a completely different task or other bits of silicon, as they said in the press release, or are handling the interframe interpolation or whatever. And that means everything can be, you know, uh, ray traced, however, at whatever ridiculous resolution, or you can mix ray tracing with rasterization and get the best of both worlds. And you get the AI upscaler thing. And even though it's all CUDA cores at the end of the day, mostly it's all still running on CUDA cores plus, you know, some of the tensor cores. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I guess when I, because like, if you go back to my, like what I expected from Ampere, I expected, you know, overall top Ampere to be somewhere around 40 to 55% better than Turing, which, okay, that turns out to be true. Eventually I did expect it to use a ton of energy because there were just too many reports coming in that if you (laughs) remove power limits, these things can use over 400 (laughs) watts. So, and that there were triple slot cards as default. So that, that turned out to be true. And then also, you know, RTXIO turned out to be true. But I also reported that 1440p performance in 1080p didn't scale as well as 4K. And I don't really care about 1080p. I don't know who's buying a $700 card for 1080p anymore. <laughs> but I got to say that the 1440p performance really did disappoint me, though. Yeah. And then when you look at the fact that they did not decide to go with 20 gigabytes as standard, I go, I for me, this is a major weakness. I'm sorry. Like, I... 20% better 1440p performance while using 30% more energy. No, I don't care about power <laughs> usage that much, guys. But that's really absurd that after a die shrink, yeah. it's not actually more efficient than what it's replacing, especially in the lower resolutions. And 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 even and even though I expected 1440p to be worse, I thought it wouldn't be that much worse. And then when you look at only... Four, you really, really should only probably buy these for the 4K performance increase. But then it only has 10 gigabytes. And I think TechSpot already found that they had to turn down VRAM settings in a couple of games. It's like, it's mostly what I expected, but those little details have made me feel a little underwhelmed, to be honest. Yeah. Like it's still, it's better than Turing was. Great. <laughs> but, you know, and cheaper. It, it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely no pat. Well, we'll see if it actually. <laughs> <laughs> but it, I, I just, it's just not any Pascal. And I think some people getting mad at me for saying that. It's, I think everyone wanted this to be another Pascal. Yeah. Well, it's not too late that it could be a Pascal. I don't think things are quite that dire. I think the price probably will settle in at around seven or eight hundred dollars because at the end of the day, it is a lot of silicon and GDDR six X is not cheap. I think you're probably right about the uh, Founders Edition having a worse margin because yeah, that cooler is ridiculous, mm-hmm. but it has to be for for what it does. <laughs> well, so let let me. Let me say this then. Let's move on to Treble Sketches. A reader mail. He goes on Ampere RDNA 2. Maybe the reason why there hasn't been a lot of real time ray tracing games out is because current game engines don't include RT as an easy toggleable feature from the start. They certainly did it at Turing's launch. Now that both Unreal Engine 4, 5, and Unity have made the process a lot easier, is it fair to say we might see an influx of ray tracing games before Hopper comes out? Hopper's the one coming after uh, Ampere. I don't know. Because, again, I think I think the, the way that, that RTX, the way that ray tracing ends up getting used is kind of the way that we saw in the, in the NVIDIA demo where it shoots a bunch of rays and then it uses AI and rasterization to figure out where everything else goes. So if you're just rendering reflections or light effects or anything like that, 
you can absolutely do that. Like you shouldn't ray trace things like just lighting effects because you can ray trace a few things with lighting effects if you know which ones to ray trace and then just sort of fill in the gaps. Uh, that's all you need to do. And that's not really that much computational overhead. I mean, look at the like the fully ray traced Quake 2. Uh, fully ray traced Quake 2, but with, you know, on top of an existing rasterization engine. It's the best of both worlds. That's basically where we're going with the game engine. And so we're already there. Games could enable that, but I don't know that that it's going to be. I don't. I don't know that's going to be what the the question asker implies, which is like this is you know must have technology or whatever. I think it's just going to be like, oh, FXAA. Do we need that? Are yeah, we- and you know, Edward Huff also writes in. When do you think rasterization will be completely dead? I mean, do you think we're going to get? Because like for that to happen, right? Hopper, the next architecture from Nvidia, we needed one where they're like only twenty percent more rasterization, but then we quadruple ray tracing. Yeah, and then the one after that would have to be basically no extra rasterization again, but we just quadrupled it again, and now we can do full path tracing. Do you see that happening in the next four or five years, or do you think it's going to be this like just kind of linear thing over time until it's easy to do just simply because we have such powerful cards. Because I think that's really the only, only two ways this happens. I think that in order for that to happen, it's going to take NVIDIA not making any money for a number of years because to really make that happen, you're going to have to have NVIDIA and Unreal or NVIDIA and some game engine company get together and basically build the game engine in silicon and then that'll be mm-hmm. the new standard. That's going to be like some, you know... Kind of like 3DFX where you needed this card to run this game, yes. period. Yeah, because how else are you going to do it and make it work that well? I mean, we can we can make the silicon that fast, but the game and the silicon basically have to be in lockstep. So Emmy Drummer 1990 writes in and says, Hi guys, would you hold on to an RX 5700 XT and wait for RDNA 3 or Hopper or just get Big Navi or Ampere now if you can get them around $700? The 3080 isn't an option for me because its 1440p performance was rather disappointing. Greetings from Switzerland. Yeah, if you want 1440p, I would probably wait and see, wait and see what, see, wait and see what happens with with Big Navi. But I bet you that they make some optimizations to the driver, and 1440p performance improves on Ampere. I would bet. Could be wrong. You think so? Because I think it is just like it needs this many pixels to saturate the CUDA cores, right? Like, that's what... I, I do think that's what's going on. I think that uh, there are, is more opportunity to squeeze some more performance out of it, but it wasn't there in any existing game engines. Like, there will be more opportunities for parallelization, but it's not there right now. I see. Yeah, once they start really building game engines with the mindset that our Ampere exists and they've had time to use it. Okay. Um, so you are saying though he should probably wait and see what happens over the next few months if he's happy. Yeah, because I'd say Big Navi is going to be closer to what the 5700 XT architecture is and will probably drop in better with older games, which could also be a bad thing in terms of like, I'm expecting the performance to be over the moon insane. It's like, well, I don't know. Well, I mean, on that note, uh, you know, this is something where... Gosh, Reese, why does Windows 10 Professional have to be so expensive?
Don't listen to that, nerd. Listen to me. You can get all the great windows and gaming keys you need at CDK Offers. I have a plan. Go to cdkoffers.com to get all the Windows Professional and Microsoft Office keys you need, and games as well. Add them to your cart, and you can even apply one of them city slicker promotional codes like Dashrink for 3% off software and Broken Silicon for 25% off all Windows codes. I do have an account on this website, and it is ultra easy to use. Just submit your order, use PayPal, credit card, or Bitcoin, and go to Windows website to download Microsoft Professional. One more time, that's go to cdkoffers.com. They are a fantastic sponsor of Moore's Law is Dead. Use offer code DOSHRINK for 3% off everything on the website and Broken Silicon for 25% off all Windows products. Now, back to the show. I don't know about you, but I'm constantly asked, Tom, how good is Big Navi going to be? Tell me exact perform, you know, percentage performance numbers now. And it's like, guys, if I knew with 100% confidence what it's going to be, do you not think I would have already done a video about it or something? <laughs> but it's like, you know, I think I rushed out some Ampere leaks a little earlier than I needed to. And now, ha- having gone through the Ampere leak cycle, we'll call it, I know which people I can trust well. And so I know who I can trust well, guys. So I'm not going to put out info on Big Navi until I know it's right. But the, what I can keep saying, though, is I really do think AMD is going to come pretty close to the 3080. I'm like, the way I would put it is I'm like 90% sure it's not going to overall, not even overall, <laughs> how do I put it? 90%, yeah, let's put it this way. I'm 90% sure the top consumer card this year won't quote unquote crush the 3080, <laughs> but I'm it will crush the 3070. And I think it's going to offer more VRAM at lower power usage, probably at similar 1440p performance. You know, that that's basically what I expect from what I'm hearing from this, frankly, pretty interesting card, but yeah, I guess I guess that's what I would say. So I think some people would say, why can't you tell me the exact performance numbers? And I go, do you really need that to know you should probably wait if you're happy with your card? I mean, I don't know. What, what are you expecting from RDNA 2? I, you know, I, I always hate this kind of like speculation and like taking a leak or, you know, something, you know, an AIB partner's got like a little nugget or whatever and, and like try to... Uh, oh, it's not an AIB partner. Well, I mean, you, you never know. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, try to extrapolate and figure out um, where they're going to go with it because there are going to be a lot of micro-architectural changes which kind of have a ripple mm-hmm. effect. And sometimes those can work out really well and sometimes those don't really work out well at all. I mean, Vega 64 on paper, well, Vega in general on paper, is really very good. And it has worked out very good in APUs. But in practice, the Vega 64 implementation for the higher end versus the lower end. For gaming, at least. Yeah, it wasn't great. But for mining, as you know, it's pretty darn good. All too well, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, ah, this is, you know, the hardware is good. We'll fix that in software later. And then later they were like, oh, oh, crap. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. You remember those rumors of, oh, they haven't enabled tiled rasterization yet in drivers just wait guys the secret sauce drivers <laughs> coming and i was like i don't think you so know, as someone who was hyped for vega it's been a month i think this is the performance guys <laughs> but so do you expect it to cut co- so you're saying you don't really 
have expectations. No, I, you know, I would love for it. I think that, that, uh, Jensen knows something that the rest of us don't know, and that's probably why things are priced the way that they are. So it's probably going to be pretty mm-hmm. good. Otherwise, I think it would have been more expensive because why would NVIDIA charge less? But that's the, about the only thing that I can infer. Yeah. Eric Anders writes in and says, given that RDNA 2 is going to have AMD's first gen of ray tracing, what are your thoughts, predictions, insights, rumors, all four of those apparently, on how it will perform against NVIDIA's second gen Ampere? And will the performance hit be similar to what we saw with Ampere, uh, with RDNA 2? I'd imagine AMD's ray tracing tech needs to be decent since it's in the consoles, and those need to last for five to eight years. Hmm. See, I I think that like the whole ray tracing thing, I think it's going to depend on really good algorithms. And um, those algorithms will probably have been derived via AI, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have AI running on the chip. You can still have uh, a bunch of like you know the CPU like, like like take crisis like crisis running with CPU rendering and <laughs> the the renderer can you know take 20 minutes per frame and just render anything you could possibly do in the game and use that as a data set for training the driver on crisis and then based mm. on um, those you could you know, reduce the number of rays that you actually have to render by a factor of 10 or 20 or 30 mm-hmm. and still get pretty close. It'll be enough for the AI to make the inference to be like, okay, this is this situation. I can just sort of blend it or this is the situation. I can just sort of blend it. You don't even necessarily need that running on the card if the thing that you use to train the AI uh, had a sufficiently good data set that you produced, you know, for a particular game or for a particular scenario or for, or for a particular whatever. You don't necessarily, you, you, you're not necessarily able to do that with every single combination of permutation, but um, you can do that kind of an approach with your driver. And I think that AMD is probably in tune to that kind of an approach with their, with their driver. And if that's the case, then you really would only need a relatively modest increase in ray tracing performance generation to generation as long as your algorithm is improving that much from generation to generation. Think about like people, you know, back in the 90s talking about, video and doing like video compression before the advent of motion jpeg and it's like you know it's all the bandwidth we have to send you know 720 pixels or 720 lines down this uh you know 10 megabit ethernet link how are we possibly ever going to deal with this and then motion jpeg comes out as a kind of compression and uh and all of a sudden it's like oh we only need 1.5 megabit for 720 Mm -hmm. 720 uh, you know, raster data. It's kind of like that with AI, except instead of compression, like instead of compressing video, uh, or and because MPEG is very lossy, you lose a lot of information. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of like that with AI and um, driver performance because you're really compressing. That's not compression is not the right word, but you're really removing a lot of the work that the the ray tracing engine would have to do. Because you're being very selective. Maybe you'd say culling. Culling yeah. some of the work you needed. And and the algorithm for doing the culling is you know fabulously complicated. Like the motion JPEG algorithm was fab- fabulously complicated because it was looking at like changes in time, and it's like okay, let's just transmit the differences, and then let's do a new keyframe, and let's transmit the differences. So those things didn't exist when at least not th- those things were not in vogue, and those things didn't really exist when like first gen RTX things happened. But then you get like RTX voice, which is exactly what happened with RTX voice. It's like, oh, well, who are you using those RTX cores? And then you can be like, 
click, just run on anything. It's like, oh, we're just running on anything. And it's like, you needed RTX to come up with the algorithm, but then once you get the algorithm, it'll run on darn near anything. Uh, yeah, and the way, and again, I don't know exactly how it works. This is still somewhat of a black box based on the people I talk to. And, and again, I want to be clear. These are not AIBs <laughs> that I'm talking to. And in fact, a lot of them are, well, I can't say, right? But I mean, like, it's like, they don't tell me everything, but they can tell me which leaks are true. And just having someone who can tell you that <laughs> is very helpful, by the way. Um, but like, it sounds like the way RDNA 2 does it is less dedicated. And I think a million and people, my listeners will have heard this a million times, but that it can kind of run low levels of RT on the hardware now. It's just if, if you were to like try to do full path tracing, Ampere is going to crush it. But you turn RTX down to low, they figured out a way to make it work with very little performance hit. And maybe it doesn't ray trace everything. Like for instance, in Battlefield 5, I don't know what the point of ray tracing a dull rusted gun is when you can't even see the reflection off of it. But you know, maybe you say all the mirrors in this room are ray traced in RDNA 2 can maybe just do that. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I'd say that's what I expect out of ray tracing from AMD. Kind of piggybacking on what you said, just taking what we've done already and saying, well, it's not that hard for us to support it at this level. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they come up with because it's, I think it's a little more software than hardware right now, but having the hardware acceleration can't hurt. Yeah. CMW writes in and says, I plan to get a new Ampere RDNA 2 graphics card, hopefully a 3080 equivalent. However, my current monitor situation complicates things. I have a non-FreeSync monitor, which has kept me on NVIDIA the past few years, a Predator XB271HU. I'd like to wait to upgrade the panel until OLEDs break into the market for obvious reasons, but I'm trying to decide whether I'm best sticking with NVIDIA and G-Sync or I should be open to exploring RDNA 2 without worrying about a lack of G-Sync ruining the gaming experience. Is this a good idea? Or will I be kicking myself for not getting something G-Sync compatible? Probably going to have to stick with G-Sync. Yeah, I think it also matters what frame rates you're running it at. And I mean, just looking at the name Predator there, I'm sure his is at least a 120 hertz monitor. Um, my experience has been, if you keep the frame rates above 100 hertz on non-FreeSync, the frames are going so fast that you actually don't even really notice the screen tearing most of the time. <laughs> so it's that not that big of a deal. But if you're below 60 hertz or you're gaming like I do in 4K, where no, it drops to 90 <laughs> or 80 sometimes, having FreeSync makes a pretty big difference. And so I, I don't know, right? It's like if you're stuck with G-Sync, man, I think you just double check that there hasn't been some update or mod for your monitor to run FreeSync because that has happened a couple of times. But if an NVIDIA card is, assuming there's no problems, you know, we don't find out there's some defect rate or something, you know, if it's price pretty similar price performance, you're probably better just sticking with that, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably true. Elijah Fleming writes in and says, when will you think lower end Ampere and RDNA 2 cards will be out? And do you think that, what do you think the price performance will be? A problem for me is finding any card that beats Polaris price performance in the low end. <laughs> which is true that you can still get like an RX 580 for under 100 bucks. I, I honestly don't know what the point of getting almost any new low-end card is. I mean, yeah. Do you? Uh, he's basically asking, do you expect low-end Ampere and RDNA 2 cards to finally put Polaris out of its mid-series? Uh, I hope so for... I doubt that the lower-end Ampere will 
put the because you can get a like a 580 you can get some super deals on a 580 i still use and recommend polaris especially on like the linux side because reset works correctly mm-hmm. for pcie reset and the drivers are very mature and still get a lot of development i don't expect great things at the low end of ampere at all but i'm answering that with a little bit more of uh, a slant on the linux side and amd gpu for rdna2 that might be good they might fix the reset issue in the new the new RDNA cards, that'll be nice because that's been a problem since Vega. Um, but uh, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. It seems like the really the the thing that will dictate price is going to be the VRAM and you know eight gig RX five eighty, mm. pretty easy to come by. And I'd rather have an eight gig RX five eighty than four gig RX fifty five hundred. Well, you know, I can kind of start guessing. I mean, I know. Big Navi is going to have 16 gigabyte cards in the 400 to $600 region. And I know they're going to, it sounds like they're then going to put 12 gigabyte cards actually cheaper than you would think, mm. you know? And so let's assume that's, that happens, right? Um, like around the $300 mark, you can get a 12 gigabyte card. Like if that happens, then I think it's easy to say they could put eight gigabytes or something, right? For... 200, like in a 128-bit car, but that's already what they've been doing with the 5500 XT. So I don't know. I mean, the funny thing is when it comes to VRAM capacity, I basically just walked it down and it's still not going to be probably better, like you said, (laughs) than a $80, 8 gigabyte 580, isn't it? So it'll probably at best tie it, but use half the energy. You know, I think think the answer I would give is with how much in demand seven nanometer capacity is at TSMC. Why would AMD not continue to spit out dirt cheap 14 nanometer cards that they can sell for 120? Like, why would they not? Like, who cares? <laughs> I'm almost surprised they don't put like the bottom RDNA 2 die or try to port it to, you know, like 14 nanometer at Global Foundries and just give it eight gigabytes of GDR6. Yeah, probably wouldn't be nearly as efficient as the top end cards. <laughs> but I'm a little surprised them and NVIDIA haven't considered doing that the past couple of gens. Yeah. I guess NVIDIA's still been on 12 nanometer. But. Yeah, maybe they're trying to keep the market artificially high or something because I've just never... Every time I've bought a 1060 or a 2060 or like the 1660, not TI, I've been disappointed. And then they immediately came out with a TI and it was just like, remember the 1660 <laughs> non-TI? That was a mistake. Which the 1650 Super, the 1660, the 1660 GDR6, the 1660 Super, the 1660 Ti. Yes, they've had quite a few of those. It's cards. like we can't find exactly where we want to be with this SKU, so let's just let's just shotgun it. That was not pleasant. Yeah. Um, let's see. Miles writes in and he says, "Hi, Tom and Wendell. Do you think with the complete unavailability of both consoles and Nvidia RTX cards? Well, I actually I, I don't know what the availability is going to be on Xbox. We don't really. Yeah. I don't. I don't have any numbers. But it sounds like, honest to God, the PS4 5 will be as available by March next year as the PS4. Was. I heard that it. So, I heard that it, that AMD secured another thirteen thousand wafers per month just for console production." And the is this news you heard in the past couple of days? Yes. Oh, so yeah, I'm not worried about the console production, frankly. <laughs> let, let me put it that way then. Um, do you think though that AMD could compete better with Nvidia by virtue of just having stock? Could they take a sizable size of the, uh, part of the market in the coming months simply because you'll actually be able to buy their cards? Uh, I'm wondering this since we technically don't know how powerful RDNA cards will be. We at least have some level of price competitiveness to make to entice gamers. Also, you guys need to talk about Bethesda buying 
or Microsoft buying Bethesda <laughs> eventually. But yeah, I mean, like, I- I've thought about that. You know, if NVIDIA tries to manipulate prices, it'd be funny if, like, the MSRP was similar to NVIDIA, but the street price was actually the MSRP. <laughs> that would be kind of funny. Uh, you know, I'd, I'm not super into, like, the console gaming thing, but with Microsoft buying Bethesda... Oh, let's just go to that. Do- then, doesn't yeah. that mean that... Uh, doesn't that mean that Microsoft is about to publish a Sony exclusive? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, delicious irony. But um, yeah, how many studios does Microsoft own now? It seems like a lot. Yeah, I think they're beating THQ even. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I don't. The, the console world is interesting. And the console world is going to be really interesting after November. It's going to be interesting to see how these, these things shake out. I think both Microsoft and Sony are pushing for their diskless solution. And gamers probably don't don't mm-hmm. care at this point, although there are still parts of America where the internet service is trash. And so, I, I don't know. I think most of the, the, even the games that you get on CD are basically just going to be glorified like downloaders or, or unlocks or whatever. I don't think there's really going to be, like you're going to buy this game on a disc and it's like, oh, you live in BFE and your internet's terrible? You're still going to have to download it and it's going to take a week. So... You know what I would say, guess what I'll say though about Microsoft uh, buying Bethesda is I think some people really need to stop looking at this market in terms of fanboy console wars because the market is so much more. It's not that you know Xbox uses uh, Sony Blu-ray players happily, and I think PlayStation runs some of their PlayStation Now streaming on the. Azure cloud. Yep. So like these people, you know, I think what people will say is, oh, now they're going to have all these Bethesda exclusives. If you read the press release from Microsoft, they literally say, we, I think Bethesda says we intend to continue to support all platforms we're supporting now with upcoming releases like Starfield. So they're not, Starfield's, and again, if I'm wrong, I'll say I'm wrong, but it's going to be on PlayStation still. What you're looking at is bigger than exclusives. Microsoft just wants their Netflix of gaming to have as many games as possible. These are still going to be on PlayStation. I'm going to tell you guys, I think it's more likely than not, as crazy as it sounds, that before the end of this coming generation, Xbox Game Pass is going to be on PlayStation and (laughs) Switch, probably. Like That's their end goal, is to make money. Their end goal is not to win a high schooler's argument about console wars. Microsoft and Sony's Objective is to make as much money as possible. Yeah. So on the one hand, where I don't think Xbox is going to like not put the next Fallout on PlayStation, I do think Sony needs to look at the potential that that could happen <laughs> and realize they need to start making sure they're competing more than just having a great console with exclusives, that they really do need to fundamentally upgrade the services they're offering. Yeah, I think that's true. That's, that's definitely... The, what the market demands from the console, I think, has changed dramatically from the last console generation. Yeah. Well, let me move on then. Alex Smith writes in and says, with the unveiling of the specifications of the Xbox Series S and the genius bit of marketing, putting 1440p and 120fps next to each other. Well, yeah, it's all marketing. That's a, That four teraflop console is not a 1440p, 120 hertz console, guys. I mean, come on. Uh, what are your expectations for the true performance? Um that doesn't have the end games that don't have the word doom in their title. Um, I mean, it's a 1080p console. I mean, yeah. I don't know what else to say. And I think it'll be fine at 1080p. You know, and a lot of people. I think that we'll have um, the software upscaling, like the uh, Radeon image sharpening, like whatever the console equivalent of that is going to be. And it's going to melt console players' brains. 
Yeah, and you know, I, I think um, I've been saying for a while in general. Look, the difference between above 1440p and below 1080p is actually pretty huge. I can tell the difference certainly, but I think once you get above 1440p, I, I can again I can tell the difference. But I will say, going from 1800p to 4k, because I play around with settings, that is pretty hard to tell. Yeah. I'm going to admit that much. And I think last gen there were these arguments. Oh, is this version running in 720p? Is this one in 900p? I think now that we're at four times those resolutions, I think like if one console's at 1800p and 4K, I don't I don't know that anyone's going to care, yeah. you know. And, and and I think when it comes to the series S, I think I think it's going to have yeah, probably a pretty good upscaling chip and most people that buy it will just understand that it'll look slightly worse and they don't. You know, I think the the idea now is ease of use. And now that we have SSDs on board, we can finally build any game we want. I think that's far more important than arguing over resolution. <laughs> and I think frame rates are going to be fine. They have eight core Zen 2s, you know. All right. So it seems like, yeah, you don't focus that much on console, <laughs> you know, news or that type of thing. But you did tell me before we started recording, you might have a lot of things to say about NVIDIA buying ARM. And I guess before I let before I let you loose, I'll just say, a lot of people have asked me about it. And I've said, you know, I think when the rumors first came out a month ago, I talked about it for 20 minutes in one of my podcasts where I'm just like, like it's a good move for NVIDIA. I think they need this. They need this ability to compete directly with integrated systems with Intel and AMD. And I always had a feeling it was probably going to happen. I think Apple's a big boy. I, and, and they'll be able to take care of themselves, even though they have ARM-based silicon. And outside of that, you know, I was talking to my brother about it on the podcast, like, this is going to be an acquisition that takes over a year. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to have a lot of time to talk about ARM. So besides saying what I said a month ago, I don't have that much to say. But like, but like what do you think about, you know, it's, it's official now. Now they are at least trying officially to buy ARM. It seems, it, on the one hand, I'm surprised that Tim Cook didn't pick up the phone and just say, oh, it's only $40 billion? I didn't know you were for sale. Here, have $45 billion. I somewhat agree, yeah. So uh, it's if, if, if Apple thinks that... If you take Tim Cook at face value for what he said about Apple Silicon, then $40 billion would be nothing to Apple, and $45 billion would be nothing to Apple. But... Um, they're so big. Yeah. They're, they're, they're worth so much money, it's ridiculous. So I think that... Um, I think that if Apple was not already aware of this then they need better corporate intelligence. So I would say that because Apple hasn't intervened, oh, yeah. uh, the situation is probably that NVIDIA has promised to keep ARM at arm's length. Uh, out of a pun there. And um, let ARM sort of do ARM. But it makes sense for NVIDIA to buy ARM to be at the helm of CPU architecture. First and foremost, the yes. thing that's on NVIDIA's mind is data center. I mean, they made that move clear mm-hmm. with the acquisition of uh, Mellanox, I think, for interconnect technologies, because that's actually sort of the not a commodity technology. But look, if you've got a processor, like if you could take an ESP8266, like a little tiny embedded system with Wi-Fi, you could connect, you know, four GPUs to that and put that in the data center. And, you know, you could run your day trading platform or whatever. Literally, the CPU's job is just to shuttle data in and out of GPUs. The whole reason that NVIDIA's market cap is is higher than Intel's is the data center component. NVIDIA charges insane prices. I've got two Tesla V100s with 32 gigs of of HBM2. Those are like seven, $8,000 graphics cards. 
And they don't cost anywhere near that to produce. They don't have that anywhere near that much R&D to produce, but they can sell them. So, so people with those 10 gigabyte uh, or with those 11 gigabyte 2080 <laughs> Ti's are really peasants compared to you. Well, it's just for machine. Like if you're playing games, yeah. they're not any faster than games because, but if you need HBM2, certain kinds of cryptocurrency well, mining. They're, they're pretty good at gaming, well, actually. I've seen. <laughs> they're really good with machine learning as well because all of the data set can live on the HBM2 and... You know, it's in, insane memory bandwidth. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of fun things you can do with Tesla V100s. Um, and they've been a lot of fun to play with, and they've been a lot of fun to do, you know, videos on here and there. And uh, But they don't cost $7,000 to produce. And But you don't get to NVIDIA's yeah. market cap doing that because there are people, you know, machine learning, trading algorithms, stuff like that. If you've got the algorithm and you need the horsepower, the, that $14,000 investment in GPUs will make $14,000 in, in a matter yeah. of months. So... Uh, even just cryptocurrency mining, you know, you're you're going to yeah. get a six month return on investment, which is insane. Not really. Anymore. Well, not really there anymore. At this point, I I almost bought Titan Voltas once for mining, just because eh, look, you know, during they were pretty good yeah, at it. Yeah. Well, during the when they were when they were first released, the the RO, the ROI payback was something insane, like like six months, assuming your electricity cost was zero, which is crazy. I mean, I'm not even to mining, but it was just like eh. oh, oh, it was one month at one. <laughs> Where I was like, I literally came. That's why I mine, guys, because I came to the conclusion. Like, I started mining for fun with like a Fury Nitro, and I was like, "Oh, this is making me a few hundred a month with one card." And then I did the math, and I'm like, "Oh, okay. I don't care how much energy these <laughs> use. It's about how many amps my house can support." And it was. I did the math to like when my house would shut off, and it did a couple times, and I had to undervolt them a little. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, I don't think that's ever happening again. Those were absurd returns on investment for about six months. So I, I don't think it really mattered too much which company that NVIDIA bought. Uh, some people might have said MIPS. Like, hey, MIPS, MIPS was right for acquisition. But the problem is that MIPS is, is already dead man walking. It doesn't have any of the hardening for any of the modern security stuff, Spectre meltdown type problems, speculative execution type problems. And it, I'm lumping a lot of things into MIPS perhaps yeah. unfairly but um at the end of the day it doesn't even have the tool chain like i've troubleshooted problems on wireless access points that are based on the mips ar- architecture that were ultimately because address space layout randomization was broken and had been broken for more than five years and no one had noticed so that tells me no one's doing any security audits no one's doing any analysis no one's doing any maintenance on the tool chain nobody's improving the ecosystem arm's not like that i mean arm has got cl- uh, products at the low end ARM is everywhere in cell phones, Qualcomm, Snapdragon, blah, blah, blah. It's ARM. Mm. ARM's, ARM's got a license. I mean, Intel, AMD, everybody is an ARM licensee. So I think it makes sense for NVIDIA to keep ARM at arm's length. But also, NVIDIA mm. can be in charge of the future CPU roadmap. And so first order of business right. is the brain for the data center, which is 99% GPUs and a little bit CPU. It's a little bit of CPU to, to maintain the interconnects between GPUs, and that's basically it. And they'll be able to steer that and get whatever they need built for that. Risk Five is not there yet, but also the people at ARM had to know that Risk Five is coming for their launch at the low end, because MIPS is super popular in the low end. But that's also because it's become kind of a trash fire, and it doesn't have any of the security hardening or the tools, like the whole ecosystem, to support developers. At the end of the day, it's about what makes lives easy for developers. Like, can we put some stuff together? And this kind of goes back to the first thing we were talking about with like connected standby. It's really what is easy for developers. CUDA and machine learning and all that stuff for NVIDIA. NVIDIA went out of their way to make it easy for that, you know, PhD researcher to just click a few buttons 
and have this vast amount of com- computational horsepower. Which is is uniform. Yeah. I've had an AI developer on. I talked to people at Hot Chips last year, obviously not this year. Um, and they say like the software stack for machine learning with CUDA and NVIDIA's platforms are just light years ahead of the competition. Yeah, it's just they don't have to think. And they don't want to think about it. They want to think about whatever it is that their field of study is. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to troubleshoot. They don't want to run things to be like, okay, this is the instruction sets you, sh- you should use for your machine learning. They're like, well, I, 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 just run. Just just go. I don't want to yeah. think about it. And um, they're going to do that with ARM in a way that they wouldn't have been able to do with MIPS or something like that. And RISC-V is not there yet. It will be. But RISC-V is, is devouring ARM at the low end um, because it doesn't, like, ARM licensing model doesn't really make sense at the low end, hence RISC-V, you know, starting to show up in things like from, from Western Digital um, and, and other stuff from, from the low end. And mixing and matching intellectual property on the RISC-V marketplace, basically, you know, turning it, the, the Amazon AWS of, Stuff you can integrate with your Risk Five processor, not from Risk Five, but you know, doing the mix and match Lego thing uh, is going to make a lot of sense. But that's going to be a lot of players involved, and everybody's going to be making money. Nvidia is already Nvidia; they don't want to share making yeah. money. They want to be the thing. They want the data, the brain in the data center. They don't want to pay anybody else. They don't want to pay anybody for their interconnect patents. They don't want to pay anybody for their uh, you know um, scaling patents. They don't want to pay anybody. Because they've got CUDA, they don't want to pay anybody for their CPU architecture. They want to own it. They want to control the roadmap. So ARM is really the only choice. Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And when you look at the way I've always thought of it is it's just such a weak spot when you have, I've heard, right, like AMD, like the, like look at them with their server racks that they're trying to sell. And they're like, this one is Intel, this one is AMD. But then AMD is over here. And I've heard they'll literally give away professional cards with their Epic <laughs> servers that they're making. Yeah. And Intel can't do that quite yet, but they're working on data center GPUs, you know? And the ability for NVIDIA to be able to control their own, as you say, brain yeah. for these racks, it's just, they're on top now, but if they weren't, this would be an insane weakness that AMD could exploit yeah. on them. And, and and frankly, we've been talking about it. AMD is coming for them with RDNA 2. And RDNA 3. So, well, can you imagine chiplets I mean, like, that mix CPU and GPU? That's how they're going to win, but it's going to take them a while to get there. Yeah. Well, I think they might have a heterogeneous, you know, what would you call it? Yeah. You know, like a data center APU. Supposedly, they might have that late next year. That was the, it won't be fully That ready. was the Oak Ridge thing, wasn't it? Like, I think the, the details are going to be made public on the Oak Ridge thing because there were some slides that leaked and it was like, you, you know yeah. the the epic whatever, but then there were four, and that was just one mm-hmm. one thing. So like you know five chiplets or whatever. At least that's what the the slide made you think that it was. And so yeah, uh, but Nvidia has got to be able to set the direction and get the smart the smart people from ARM doing that. And it seems like most people at ARM think that this is a really good idea. There are a few people that don't, notably the the co founder. But all of the objections the co founder had for selling to Nvidia. I thought would also apply to selling to SoftBank in the first place. So not his, I didn't find his arguments particularly compelling. Well, and on that thing you brought up about Apple not stopping this, someone, a couple of people pointed out to me that Apple just has a perpetual license for like several, several of the ARM instructions and architecture sets. And that if you actually listen to what Apple's been saying lately, they say it's ARM based, but I, I, I actually do believe Apple fully intends 
to take the licenses they have from ARM now, split it off, and eventually it's just their own version of ARM. I don't know that long-term they need ARM to play that much ball the, as they continue to iterate on their own silicon. Like they, they fully intend to make their own architectures moving forward, and there's a chance they might have the licenses they need already to do that for a long time. Yeah, that's true. Uh, in a larger ecosystem for peripheral support, they're going to have to work with with uh, other people and other vendors, though. And I don't know where you get the the expertise, the talent, unless sure. unless Intel just hires them all internally. But historically, that hasn't worked out great for for Apple. No. Well, so let me ask this question that the gamers will want to ask. Josh Law writes in and says, what do you think about NVIDIA buying ARM? Is there a chance for high-end ARM desktop gaming PCs? And is ARM now an even bigger threat to AMD and Intel now that it's under NVIDIA? Yes. So I think as soon as they get the data center thing squared away, Jensen is going to come for the desktop. And I think he's just going to do it just for giggles. See, there's this weird story <laughs> around... Really? There's this, this weird story in the pre-Lisa Sue AMD days. I don't know how true this is. But in the, in the pre-Lisa Sue days of AMD, you know, when they were kind of struggling, AMD was looking to buy a GPU company. And NVIDIA was real tiny compared to what they are now. And um, it was down to NVIDIA or ATI. And rumor has it that the, really? the preference for the buyout was NVIDIA. And the deal was worked and everything was good. The only, the only problem, the only sticking point, the sticky wicket thing in there, was Jensen wanted to be CEO of the new merged oh, entity. I remember this. Yes, I did hear yeah. this. And yeah. so they, of course he did. Come they on. weren't willing to budge on that. And so Could you see Jensen not being CEO in that acquisition? The guy would just melt. Jensen never <laughs> forgets. That this what we're seeing now is him remembering that. And he's like, look, no, you know, NVIDIA's on the trillion dollar company path. And I remember when I was snubbed to be CEO of a processor company. I will be CEO of a processor company. Oh, it's that. And, you know, here we are with ARM. And the crazy thing is that probably if Apple pulls this off, all of the nonsense, like unless Microsoft and Intel and to a certain extent AMD can get their crap together and fix this like connected standby and actually make, Mm. you know, the consumer experience with PCs really good. ARM will absolutely take over. I mean, we've got Chromebooks, we got like the Surface Pro X. And, and you don't see x86 being an issue for them making gaming chips? No. You think developers, they'll like buy, I guess, you know, Microsoft is already working to make ARM work in Windows anyways, yeah. right? So you just think developers will support both. Yeah, I think that the, the, there will be something like Rosetta for old stuff. And because the GPUs will not have changed much in the move from ARM to x86, that that's really the only thing that we'll be dealing with. I mean, look, we don't have a DOS graphics layer like we used to, but DOS games run well enough in five or ten years. You know, we don't we don't mm, we don't yeah. have DirectX nine at all. We're probably using some version of the open source thing that does DirectX nine because it's already mind blowing. That thing that does real time translation of DirectX nine to Vulkan is already faster than DirectX mm. nine. Like the the legacy compatibility yeah. layer for DirectX nine that currently exists in Windows is slower than real-time translation of DirectX 9 to Vulkan. So that's that's how it's going to be on ARM. Yeah. I mean, DJ5K directly asked, in your opinion, will ARM continue its, ado- its adoption trajectory in DCs and HPC, or do you think it will plateau soon when RISC-V and power step it up, <laughs> if they step the, it up? The adoption velocity of ARM depends entirely on the performance delta and feature delta between your ARM experience and your x86 experience. If Joe random person has a great experience with an ARM laptop 
and you know, he doesn't care. Yeah, it's seamless 4K video editing because I mean, how like it is it is wrong. It is a crime against computing that you can do 4K video editing on an iPad on an iPad that doesn't even get hot. Yeah, versus a top of the line i9 MacBook Pro. The fact that video a 4K yeah. video editing experience is better on an iPad than with the you know, Rube Goldberg machine of of insane dumb things that are apparently the architecture <laughs> the, on the MacBook. The backbone of Microsoft's products. Yeah, I mean, it's just how 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 did we get here? Something has gone horribly wrong, and unless that ship is put right, ARM is just going to eat everybody's lunch. And I think that is why Apple, again, going back to it, decided to build. They, you know, Apple saw that and they're like, "What are we even doing? Yeah, bothering with this." You know, I mean, uh, David Sampson writes in and he says, "How do you think Apple building their own silicon will affect the industry, though, in the coming years?" This is something I've wondered about too. Is if Apple building their own silicon, if eventually, you know, let's say it works out great, they sell more and more Macs, and they decide the time to expand, could you see a situation where they start selling? Apple Silicon for do-it-yourself or anything close to that and not, and not their own products? Or do you think it's always going to be just... I think they got to maintain the control. And so, uh, you know, they got to maintain the control. And everything always goes back to the control. So the easiest... The things to figure out what they will do and will not do, they will only do the things where they have the absolute maximum amount of control. So there might be a little bit of an option for DIYers, but I kind of doubt it because, you know, even people that use an eGPU, mm. which should an eGPU should be a reasonably well-supported thing on Mac. They even demoed it at one of the developer conferences like two or three years ago where it's like, look, we're going to do this. It's going to be good. I promise. And then they kind of didn't. So I just Apple is going to do whatever makes Apple money. And they literally do not care about any of the partners or anybody that has invested mm. in the ecosystem. So um, I think that ultimately Apple sees you know, whatever iPad, like whatever the graphics capabilities of the iPad are as like the alternative to a console. And if it can do 720p and they can sell X number of dollars with games, they're going to see that as equivalent, even if we've got a 4K console at the time. And that's really the tragedy of Apple is they don't, they're not really comparing apples to apples <laughs> when they're looking at things like that. They're just saying, we think this is a substitute in the market when it's really not. All right, so I've got a couple of final things just to kind of round out everything we've talked about. Carbon Cry writes in and says, this question is more for you, Wendell. How do you see power going forward? It's in all caps, obviously, referencing IBM. Is he planning an interview with Raptor about possible Power 10 workstation? So I'm tracking the Power 10 situation pretty closely. If you're not in the know on Power 10, IBM has sort of signaled that Power 10 is going to be less open than Power 9, which is a problem for Raptor. Um, it probably should be on my agenda to do a follow-up interview with uh, Raptor Computing about Power 10 and sort of where they go. But right now, it seems like everything is kind of on eggshells because IBM sort of sees the writing on the wall with Risk Five, and I think they're a little bit worried about Risk Five stuff. Uh, you know, sort of IBM, whatever IBM thinks is IBM's in power, sort of making its way over to Risk Five, and so they've they've definitely made some, you know. Uh, there, there, there are murmurs about not really being as open with Power 10 as they have been with Power 9, which I think would be a mistake and a tragedy. But um, it would be nice to have fully open Power 10 workstations. I definitely think there is a place for that in the market, uh, certainly outside of the U.S., certainly with like global security fears and like the U.S. and China meddling with everything. I mean, that's a market opportunity for Power 10. So 
I don't know. I mean, IBM surely has done the research on that and will do do what's appropriate. But the whole impetus for doing that with Power Nine was supposedly, you know, the global situation and then it's fully open and blah, blah, blah. And then Power Nine is a is sort of a happy thing that falls out of that. But with Power Ten not being as open, that sort of torpedoes all of that. So that might not be a problem long term. Well, so just to get an official statement out of you then, Dragonetti031 writes in and says, which processor IP, x86, ARM, RISC-V, Power10, or any other you can mention, of the future for consumers and business? NVIDIA's bought ARM, RISC-V is get, gaining momentum, and Power10 from IBM is supposedly still going strong, but at the same time, x86 is dominating a larger part of consumer and business markets. And AMD is innovating quickly. So, like of all of these, which one do you see? I guess there's two ways to ask this, right? So, so which of the all of those, you know, I, all of that IP I mentioned, which ones do you think is going to gain the most? And do you think there will be a clear winner in the next ten years? I don't think there's going to be a clear winner in the next year, except maybe possibly ARM, um, but maybe not. I mean, x86 may turn it around. And like I say, where, where I see things right now, unless Intel pulls a rabbit out of a hat with like. Tiger Lake plus 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 plus. It seems like that's much farther away. I mean, I think Alder Lake, right? I think Alder Lake. I've covered that a bazillion times. And if I'm being honest, you know, my my Intel info is by far higher quality than my Nvidia. <laughs> like, I'll just admit it. You know, like um, I, I would say, even now, my Nvidia info isn't even half as good as my Intel was a year ago. Intel's quite a leaky ship, actually. <laughs> but I think Alder Lake will be good. You know, big little. Um, uh, and um, on 10 nanometer end of next year, I think it will be good. But I, I do think, you know, just the second Zen 4 comes out after that. I think AMD <laughs> is in charge of x86 to kind of keep us on subject. Yeah, I think, I think, so I think ARM and RISC-V is going to be devouring some of ARM's market share. ARM is going to be devouring some of x86 market share. I don't think power is going to grow. I think they're going to shrink. Um, I think that... Mm. Your niche players like MIPS, I think those are going to suffer the most in the next five or 10 years. Like everything is going to concentrate on ARM or Risk Five. Like you're pretty much going to pick a team and go. And the best bet, the best hope that we have for long term x86 is probably AMD producing an overall good x86 experience for people. And so even if Alder Lake mm-hmm. is an amazing piece of silicon, if the software for it isn't there, nobody's going to use it. OS2. So so AMD needs to do a better job working with Microsoft on Windows than Intel has. They're going to have to be on top of things like connected standby. And like that's a hardware problem at the end of the day. And yeah. it's Microsoft it's going to take Microsoft and AMD working together to solve that problem. And it's going to have to be easy for developers to take advantage of that solution. So just you can't just solve the problem and then leave it to the four people in the entire world that understand the solution to that problem. It has to be easy for your rank-and-file programmers, which honestly are not very impressive. So the super engineers that are working on this, you know, they're going to have to really, really make it easy and accessible and for everybody for third-party software. Otherwise, x86 is going to lose a lot more. It also has to do with the performance delta. ARM doesn't have to be better single-thread or multi-thread than x86. It has to be good enough. Uh, But right now, Mm -hmm. I think ARM is delivering an objectively better user experience because of the entire ecosystem for Joe average end user with things like iPad, which is 
maybe a little bit Apple. I can give a little bit of credit to Apple, but it's really just Apple relentlessly pursuing getting rid of the old cruft um, than you experience with portable x86 devices. Yeah, and even like Windows 10 S is like, oh, it's just because okay, Windows 10 S, you can only use Microsoft App Store stuff. It's a dumpster fire. It's bad. Yeah. There's just no getting around that it's bad. Uh, it's disappointing. It's so disappointing because it could be so good, and yet, I, I know you can see glimmers of like where Windows could go, and they just never. Every time I think Microsoft's going to do it in the past twenty years, they just never just. It's like you got all this money, Microsoft. Just make it as good as it could. Windows two thousand four, finally half-assed Android integration. Woo! Yeah, <laughs> it's sad. It's very sad. It's it's not a good time to be an end user. And see, it's like I don't want to. I, I I really think that in getting there, Apple's done some hideously evil things, and I, and I really sure. don't know why Google is not more on top of this. Google seems like it's just death by a thousand engineers going in all directions at once, trying to empirically decide, you know, which <laughs> you know size of icons is the best using analytical data. And it's like, guys, maybe we should not put our energy into that and put our energy into actually making the experience better because they've lost the plot. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, an example of Google losing the plot would just be, you know, for instance, it, this is a funny example, but it's like Cobra Kai just came to Netflix and now everyone's talking about Cobra Kai. Ever, and it was on YouTube Red for like five, four years or something, and just no one watched it. And you want to know why? You want to know why no one watched it? Google, because no one freaking goes to Google to watch Netflix shows. They go to, I mean, goes to YouTube to watch Netflix shows. They go to YouTube to watch, you know, personalized personalities and specific content they want to watch. So maybe instead of trying to fund HBO like shows on YouTube, no one will realize is on YouTube. You just make the end user experience the best it can be for your creators and stop banning and demonetizing people. <laughs> but I digress. You know, it's like an example of just focus on what you're actually able to do well and stop trying. I mean, it's just greed at the end of the day, right? Microsoft could make Windows the best place for everything, whether it's Windows gaming. But I guess Steam's just, for example, for a while, going to make a better game store on their own platform than they do. You know, it's it's thinking you can conquer everything at once, right? instead of just focusing on what you should probably have done well a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, it is It is really amazing what things end up being built by committee. You know, uh, <laughs> it's like, Mixer. how did we get here? Uh, it's like, I don't know. Everybody thought it was a good idea at the time. It's like, no, no. But you almost go, did they really? Did they actually <laughs> they did. think it was a good idea? They definitely did. Or did they just think they had to do it well because we're Google. We do everything well. So, of course, if we do this, uh, everyone will use Google Plus instead of Facebook. Why How many millions of dollars? Probably, it's probably more than 10. I hope it's not more than 100 million dollars was spent on connected standby. And it's just as good as if it was never created. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Well, okay, I think we pretty much, I think I did actually successfully get through all the subjects I could for the reader mails I couldn't get to. I think we actually did touch on all of the ones that were there. I think we did. Even if we didn't explicitly read them. Um, and, you know, I'll try to keep as many as I can for mailbags in the future that we'll eventually get to everyone on Die Shrink. But I don't know. Is it, I think we've covered the subjects we needed to, that we planned to, the ones that you could talk about the most. Like, um, is there anything else you want to talk about? Or? No, uh, I, not that I can think of. I think I do think we covered everything, and I think we got to everybody's question, even if we didn't get to read everybody's name. But hopefully, some people found it interesting. It was definitely, you know, a very long ramble. Uh, 
I have to... I think this will be some people's favorite episodes. I don't think this is going to be for the gamers, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> I do like rambling, but I try not to... I, you know, it's hard to start out with one thing and just be like, here's all the stuff that I want to tell you. And then it's like, oh, you might not know that. Let me go off in this other direction and tell you this other thing. And then meanwhile, like half the people are like, yes, I already know all this. Just give me the new information. And it's like, I don't know. It's a weird format. You sell yourself short. <laughs> but uh, why don't you plug yourself, your platforms, all of that before you go as well. So people will know where to find you. If you want to check me out, it's just um, youtube.com slash level and the number one text or level and the number one text.com. And then you can get to wherever you need to go from there. We've got a really popular forum. There's like 100,000 users on the forum. Uh, most of them are not are, are not active, but they'll show up whenever I have a project or a video or a particular subject comes up or something like that. And there's a lot of how-tos on the forum for doing stuff with Linux or you know recovering dead SSDs or flashing brick security cameras, just random crap that I've worked on. Uh, over the years or random crap that other people worked on over the years. So it's a, it's a fun place forum.level1text.com. So I'm Wendell. I'm signing out and I'll see you later. All right. Yep. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The following podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Laws Dead. Moore's Laws Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law's Dead podcast, videos, articles, and other media. However, Moore's Law's Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, and select technical editing by Carbon Cry. You can find all of our information, including how to get a hold of us, at www.moreslawsdead.com. And if you are a fan and would like to send mail or other hardware, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead, P.O. Box 10468, Peoria, Illinois, 61612. And speaking of fans, without exaggeration, the patrons are solely responsible for the continued distribution of the content you just listened to. And so if you have some extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast, Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, the Moore's Laws Dead Discord full of like-minded people who would love to meet you. I am one of them. The Discord is only at $1, and at higher tiers, you get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the back catalog of Flyover States podcast, thanks in the credits of videos and podcasts and other perks as well. And if you cannot afford to support us, please just share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media and Reddit. And give Broken Silicon and Flyover States a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. All of this really does help so much more than I think anyone realizes. If you'd like to advertise on the podcast or a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its fans supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Matthew McMullen, Telos, Dean, Benny Berlin, Justin Yant, Thomas Rupp, I Love You, Lennon, Jim Bollocks, Joshua Albin, Muhammad Alquari, Frederick Lau, James Crasta, Justin Parrish, Zachary Martin, Terrence Herod, Brad Medlin, Phil S., Courtney Elliott, The Ninth Dude, Greg Renegar, TSPCFS, Chrysantine, Night Rogue 77, The Mechanical Philosopher, Libo Kinkilo, Fatboy Diesel, Daniel Hyde, D. Gunky, Christoph Novak, Jack O'Neill, Matt Salem, Aaron Close, Sexy, V.I. Pass, Sadler Sadler, Isaiah Gosner, Lethros, Telos, Hey There's a Kitty, Greg T. Wanchek, Jacob 
Barber, Exoti, Hector Santana, Matthew Lane, Joe McMorrow, Jan Rauner, Rubber Ducks, Jita Full, Allie Robertson, Eric Jackson, Jonathan, Job, Evan Dingle, Dominique Cox, Stefan, Original Ross, George Danforth, Sam MacArthur, Total Silo, Sol Connor, Michael Costa, Andrew S., Blake, Aaron Keith, Kerry Baldino, Endless Loggins, Tom Sanofilippo, Justice Brennan, Ivan K., Trevor Powers, Sayonara, Elenia, Joshua Stavenis, Daniel Nishpal, Franco Frederick, Hardware Numbers, Alex Carastillo, Dark Rain 2049, Leighton Perry, Mac, Carlos Valdez, Carnivore Bear, Macto226, Zebra Z Burr, Zlicky, Matten Porshagji, David Cowden, Ricky Tan, Garanadin, Patrick JS, Justin Staples, Freddie Canoas Jr., Christopher Foster, Kiwi Phil, Joaquim Hagen, Sarah Light, Anthony Gareffa, Matthew Griffin, Alex, Joseph Loria, Calm Marco, Deke, DHR Taumach, Raul Abeneni, Cheesy Ramen, Jake Dude23, Brian Riggleman, Maxim Batukin, Ryan Denescu, Dave McCoy, Valko Milev, Masseurs, Paul Bogdan, Morton Svensson, Andrew, Thomas Somers, Maurice Courtois, Matthew J. Link, Mose from Oz, My Sharona, Derek File, and finally, thank you to Sahara for the music. 